Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Welcome, 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 welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And we are back once again in that sweet, mint, rad, totally tubular year of 1982. Um, yeah, last week we got us through the beginning of the year. Um, we did have uh, a brief foolish thought that um, that we thought we could do an entire year in one show. Um, we thought maybe it could happen. Yeah, it's almost though it's almost as if though that you and I have never listened to our show though. We should really know better at this point. I really don't listen to the show. I do not care for the hosts. I know. I don't. Uh I think otherwise that, um... it's a pretty good show, but mm-hmm. I think that it sounds good. I just think that uh whoever's doing the video feed of it um just is that's like really full of himself. Um but anyway, uh, so we decided, OK, you know what? Let's just lean into it. We are going to um, we're going to really get into because uh, summer 1982, summer 1982 is uh, I mean, you're you're about to hear some pretty iconic movie titles and they all came out in the same year. And it was boy, what do you choose? What do you choose at the multiplex? Whew. But it's really there's something I know, for everybody. I know the answer to that one. <laughs> Yeah, well, yes, we will. We will get to that, too. Um, all right. Uh, but first, but first, we, uh, you know, last week we did spend a little time talking about some of the um, iconic people that we lost. We lost another um, iconic uh, actor this past week, um, and we just want to honor her um, real quick before we get into 1982. And that, of course, is Nichelle Nichols from um, from Star Trek. And um, yeah, just I mean, at a time when seeing uh, a person of color on screen was just uh, well, person of color on screen who wasn't playing a criminal of some kind. Um, you know, I mean, this, she was she was iconic. She, she it was a big deal. Yeah, because she was right in there with it. She wasn't just a, a like you say a person of color on screen. She was a a, a woman. A, of color in a really, really important uh, role amongst this uh, Star Trek crew, the communications officer, you know, um, and she was great, and she ch truly ch changed the way people saw stuff. You know, I, the best testimonial out there for the for the effect she had on a little girl is to listen to Whoopi Goldberg talk about. Michelle uh, Nichols, it's it 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 I mean it puts stuff into perspective that a perspective that we don't exactly 
share because we weren't born yet when that show was on. And because, you know, we're just a couple of suburban white kids. Uh, Joel reminded me before the show started that she used to help recruit, you know, talented technicians and, and scientists uh, for NASA because she was just, she just had this weight of, she was able to sell the excitement of the adventure of it all, but she, because of how cool Star Trek was and her role and because, and she was able to show that, uh, sell, help sell the inclusivity of it all. Mm-hmm. And that's going forward beyond Star Trek. That's always what, you know, that's always sort of the role that she's played in entertainment. And she's great on that show at moments. You right. know, it's very, very famously a, a, a part of the first interracial kiss ever on television. Yep. Um, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big barrier to be there when it breaks down to be mm-hmm. at the center of, you know, and, uh, some dumb redneck. They got a whole huge letter writing campaign. Although most people, which it had the effect on, I think most audience members is that they didn't really. It was kind of like it. It didn't really go over. But some people got upset. But one guy wrote in. He was like, "You know, I don't approve of that. But I gotta say, if I was Captain Kirk and I had that lovely lady in my arms, I think I would go for it as well and everything. <laughs> I don't think I'd be able to control myself." Oh boy. Thanks, Brandon. And, and it was signed, you know, signed cordially, Senator Strom Thurmond. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they kept um, that. They kept that letter because it's mm-hmm. funny, but also just because that's that's that in, in maybe in a meager way, but that's evidence of a boundary being shattered. It really, really is. Absolutely. That, some, that somewhere out there, this this dude was like. Wait, huh? I'm what? supposed to be mad at that, but well, mm, I guess so. You know, that's yeah. It's how it starts. It, oh, it's how it boy. starts. It's how it's, it's the those first dominoes to fall. That's a big yep. deal. So there is a uh, terrific documentary on. I, I know you can watch it on Paramount Plus if you have a, pers- uh, a subscription to that. Might be available on Peacock if you are um, like a com. I mean, if you are a Comcast or Xfinity. Um, user or you uh, actually Wom- subscribe to peacock you're <laughs> subscribed to peacock uh woman in motion it's called it's a documentary all about her effect um on on especially young women of color getting involved in science and technology um because of because of uhura um all right so nichelle nichols thank you uh we salute you you are just you you will be missed you are awesome and uh, all right um okay so 1982 when we last left you um we we were in may and we thought we thought we were done with may oh no but we um we left off one big movie that came out in may but first let's get our little uh let's get our little year in review or the year that was what do we call that again uh it's not the year that was it the was year uh, in film 19 the year in film of course yeah so it, 
<laughs> the year that was. You sure you're on... ready to do this today, man? I don't want to put any <laughs> extra pressure on you. Yeah, well, it's okay. It's uh, it's been a, it's been a bit of a week, but we're okay <laughs> here. We're okay here in the bunker. Uh, all right. Um. Uh, all right. Yeah, the year in film, 1982. All right. So in May, we thought we uh, we we initially we teased you thinking we were going to end with Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. But there was also a movie that came out in May on that same week. Really starring... the, to officially start the summer. Yeah. Uh, and it was the third installment of the Rocky franchise. Rocky three. That's my my eye of the tiger. I remember vividly how the Bill Conti Orchestra just butchered that song at the Oscars that year. (laughs) Yep. It's like, hey, everybody, climb into the elevator. It literally started the show that, you know, that that tune. And it starts... Some dude down there in the pit orchestra is playing the guitar, and it sounds about right. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what's going on? All the other and people Bill, who sang stuff for that, like Stephen Bishop was there and stuff. And it's like, what? Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> what? Couldn't you get, I guess Survivor was out on tour or something. But I, yeah. feels, I feel like they would have flown somewhere to do that if they'd have been asked. Yeah, you'd think. Well, Bill, maybe Bill was just uh, maybe he was trying to do a subtle sabotage because they, you know, they weren't playing his Rocky theme. And uh, is it is that is he the guy who does the Rocky theme? Yeah. Then maybe I'm maybe I'm besmirching him uh, incorrectly. Maybe it was somebody else. I believe it was Bill Conti and his orchestra that did the. Well, yeah, Bill there. Bill Conti ran the Academy Orchestra forever. For a long but, time. Um, yeah. So okay. So Rocky, Rocky three. Um, you know, gone are the days of the 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 young upstart Rocky who's <laughs> just trying to survive and just trying to find a challenge. And you know, he's a punk. He's a nothing. Whatever. So at the end of Rocky two, uh, Rocky stood got to got to standing on his feet faster than Apollo Creed. Who Rocky? Rocky's such a good movie. And one of the great things about it is that he doesn't win at the end. Right. You know, he's left standing, but that's spoiler for Rocky 76 if you haven't seen it. But it, that's that's enough. You know, he went toe to toe with the champion of the world in this sort of exhibition. Even if he'd have won, he wouldn't have gotten. Or I guess that was the premise, right? He was giving a, a, a random person a shot at the heavyweight title, essentially. Yeah. Um. So he would have walked home, you know, heavyweight champion of the world, which is a big deal. Obviously, in boxing, it's the biggest deal. And although when you look at it, I don't know that either Stallone or or uh, Carl Weathers are heavyweights necessarily. Right. They're somewhere in between, but that's not the point. Um, 
it's it's just cool that he doesn't win. And Rocky II starts the moment the match is over. They're both being rolled into the hospital, basically, for all the cuts and slashes yeah. and how badly beat up they've been. And that's such a great opening. Rocky II really is the Jaws two of the Rocky series. It's let's do Rocky again. But it it falls down a little bit because it 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 really is let's do it again except let's let's finally have them win and let's kind of dis let's dispatch a lot of the you know more nuanced storytelling for a straight up uh yeah. you know they have it's almost like they have to do a sequel they have to they got to push the buttons harder to get you to that same spot than the first movie does. So, yeah. but it ain't bad. It it really as far as let's do Rocky again, it's pretty good. You could right. see uh, Rocky still sort of uh, he's a folk hero now, but he's still part of the neighborhood, and you get to travel back to all those same places and those same relationships, and and it works great in that way. Rocky three is where the Rocky franchise really starts. It's a totally right. different deal. He is the heavyweight champion of the world. Every time he fights, he gets, you know, two and a half million bucks or whatever the deal was back in the early eighties. Um, so they have this big, uh, they have this big montage in it of all these weird fights, the exhibition matches and things he's doing. And, mm -hmm. um, and then some kid from the street, some angry kid with a point to prove, appears on the scene. Clubber Lang, right? Played by Mr. T. Mr. T's Correct. Mr. T's best ever role by I'm not sure what the drop off is between this and the A team, but it's big. <laughs> it's yeah. big before you get to his next best role. Um He's really, really good in this. I mean, we all can see him coming from miles away. And the fact yep. that our hero kind of doesn't is is kind of amazing but the whole and the the team up nature of rocky three just to talk about it substantively i'm sure we'll do rocky series someday maybe it's getting harder now that there's so many of them but but the cool thing about rocky three is that he he loses he gets he gets the crap kicked out of him because he's he's lost whatever that is that fire that little passion that you've got to have to really get into a fight with somebody when somebody else is is fighting like mad to take you down mm -hmm. and it what's really neat in the film is that it's apollo and his team i won't explain fully the reasons why but it's those guys who ride to the rescue and say you know this this the the high life isn't enough you know and even mm -hmm. apollo demonstrates that in the earlier films yeah he's got the big pool in the backyard and the big big mansion in the hollywood hills but he he's he is on fire as a fighter apollo he always is we never see him otherwise um and he that's the lesson he 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 that they teach him that if he's right. going to come back for this rematch if he's even going to have a chance against this killer um he's got to get back the eye of the tiger they call it and that that's where mm -hmm. the name of the song comes and that's sort of the lesson of the movie don't forget yourself you know don't forget where you came from and it 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 works pretty good it it clubbers a absolutely worthy ab adversary um Rocky's journey into the world of Apollo's upbringing is brings a lot of interesting diversity and a lot of 
a, lo- a glimpse into a culture that I, that even Rock, even though he's from a pretty diverse town, really doesn't doesn't know much about and stuff. And that helps fuel him and fire him up to go back and win. And I guess the stuff happening with everybody else isn't so great. I, Rocky three iconically ends with Apollo and Rocky on their own in a quiet gym in the middle of the night going mm-hmm. at it to see trying to settle trying to settle who who is the toughest to break the tie carl weathers, essentially. Carl weathers to... is yeah carl weathers is really good in that because he's just he does play that that i lost by one second yeah. one second yeah, yeah he still hasn't really he's yeah. he's rocky's you know angel on his shoulder in this film and yet he still hasn't given up on the fact that he's probably still better you know and that's mm-hmm. I could say that's sort of the lesson of the thing. It's a really, really enjoyable movie. It's a really great bridge between the 70s, you know, down-to-earth sort of um, improvisational, like, street drama that the early Rocky movies are and the big, giant Hollywood blockbusters that Rocky IV and Rocky V are. Um, It bridges the gap really, really nicely. That, That... uh and i had the tiger on the radio and it's one of those songs where i don't know, i guess i don't know how you feel about it now maybe you hated it back then but it's one of those songs that in the summer 82 when it came on the radio like you were never sad to hear it start playing it's, right it was you always like oh yeah you know it it really did it's a, it's silly now because it's been all these years and it's been in all these parodies and all this stuff so when you hear it you think of it a different way but Back then, I mean that it it took that sort of iconic. Yeah, Bill Conti, who I was just ripping on, you know, his that his Rocky theme really is outstanding. But this this era needed something different, and and Eye of the Tiger is just outstanding, and it gets yeah. to the heart of exactly what the movie's about, which is which is also super cool because that can be cheesy too, right. Um, um yeah rocky three i mean eye of the tiger is uh is yeah i mean it's iconic song uh it also um uh you know rocky three became the template for like all of these i mean it, boy a training montage i mean rocky three became the template um it wasn't the first to do it but boy it it really well, both the other rockies <laughs> have training montages obviously uh, that so it's not even the first rocky movie to do it but Right. It's but it's it's but though with the with the rock song playing in the background, you know, heavy guitars, right, you know, and uh the guys were running on the beach. Uh I'm trying to think of the song that was playing during that during that montage. It's not Eye of the Tiger, I don't think at that point. No, that's the that's them bringing the Bill Conti music back for a um let's see, yeah. Which they bring back in every movie one way or another, but it's good. Rocky three was a third highest grossing film of the year was a huge hit. And because it sort of, it, it, it puts you through those paces, you know, it really does. Was, it, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't considered a drop off from anything that you'd seen before. It was actually kind of in its energy and everything about it. It was kind of an escalation. It really did leave behind the, the working class hero, rocky character for good you know mm-hmm. but 
it, you had to do that at some point too, honestly. So. Oh, I was getting okay in the next movie. In uh, I was thinking of Hearts on Fire by John Cafferty, but that's in the fourth movie. When he's um, lift, dragging logs and stuff in yep. Siberia and everything, that's yep. you getting those mixed up. Yep, getting the song. Yeah, get I I have Hearts on Fire. St you know, stuck in my head. There's two one. training montages in Rocky Four. Oh yes, up, there are. Oh the yes, they are. Yeah, they're like me. Well, what if one's good, two's got to be better. Um, all right, tell you so Rocky Three. So that actually caps us off at May. If you want to know something, but since you brought up Rocky Four. I actually found got a copy of that sort of limited edition soundtrack to that. Rocky IV had a very hugely high-selling soundtrack. Rocky IV is essentially eight music videos strung together. It's mm -hmm. From a storytelling standpoint, it's nowhere near as good as Rocky III. But right. from a Rocky is, a, is now a, a cinematic superhero standpoint, it's, it, it's the top of the mountain to... <laughs> Yeah. To, to reference the training montage, but I actually tracked down the extended version of that soundtrack, which has the extended version of the score that comes at the end of Hearts on Fire, and and I took Hearts on Fire from the old soundtrack album and and I upped the gain so that they matched and I edited them together so that they actually play like they do in the movie, mm -hmm. except better than in the movie because you get the whole in the movie you only get like half a Hearts on Fire, like skips the middle part. So you get yep. the whole thing followed by the big ending, which is the awesomest thing ever. Double mm -hmm. shot, which Rocky is, Four again, always a solid argument. Yep, which is what you what, you know when Ryan goes out on his uh, on his runs and he's he's uh, lifting people up on the on the little wagon and um, you know and he's hauling logs and he's chopping logs. That's what's playing. If you ever are wondering what's playing on his Walkman, it, it doesn't uh, get many it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, not many people know this, but Ryan uh, Ryan still uh, plays all his music on a Walkman. Uh, I, I do have tape. multiple Walkmans to choose from here. Mm -hmm. Yes, he has his dress Walkman, his uh, casual Walkman, his sport Walkman, um, his uh, still got the yellow the, the yellow water resistant Walkman. Back yep, in. the swimming Walkman. Yeah, so he's got all of those. It's, uh, it's you know, he has a it's a cornucopia of walkman colors um all right so uh so that takes us to the end of may so now that that like summer has kicked off now we are into it so we get into june and we start june with a little bit of scary um but uh we're, and we're going to talk more about some of the um other excuse me scary horror movies that come out later or that come yeah there's out. a couple sprinkled throughout because they were important and then there's all the rest of them all sort of gathered at halloween not because they mm -hmm. came out then because i just didn't want i didn't want this journey through 1982 to keep getting interrupted by slasher films they right. as we said last week they th there was one out every week <laughs> every week right. had one almost every so, week it was crazy and you know, i just uh, thanks. Um, no thanks to most this one. Of those. Yeah, but this one is a pretty important one. It's Toby Hooper's Poltergeist. Yeah, wow. that movie. This movie scares the crap out of me. Still does. Really? I don't. I don't want. Yep. I don't watch it. It. Um, I'm immune that, to Poltergeist charms for the most part. There's things that I really like about it, but I was never scared of it. I just. I felt like it's too 
Um, what's the scene mm. where they come into the see the kids' room and the weird records are floating and like the records being played by like a toothbrush or something? And I'm just like, what? I mean, that, as <laughs> soon as that happens, you know, because it's creepy at the beginning, but as soon mm-hmm. as they bring out the the like space magic effects and all that crap, I was just like, okay, this is not scary anymore. It's just mm-hmm. loud and obnoxious. Um, but, but until you get to that point, it's really, really well done. Toby Hooper's a really, really good director. And even though he's got to negotiate some pretty crazy moments, he does a really nice job with it. I mean, the little, the little girl at the TV is this sort of chilling, calm, spooky thing. I'm guessing we'll see what happens, but I'm guessing when you tuned into the show this week, that that's probably the image that you saw. We'll see. Maybe I'll think of a better (laughs) one between now and then, but, but because it's, because it's absolutely, as far as summer 82 goes, that's the iconic image (laughs) from it. The hands on the snowy TV screen and there's something in there. And even though we don't know that it's bad yet, we do know that it's bad. That's good storytelling. Like there's, not just because we know what movie we came to see, but, you know, she's talking to them and they're befriending her. And the idea that they're tricking her is really, really awesome. But it's mixed with this this a Native American lore that finds its way in there that doesn't really fit with anything that they're saying. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's this idea that these corpses are partly making this happen. Like, there's not a clear explanation for any of it. And the supernatural probably should be that way. But I don't know, even the seance scene, like it's cool, but it, it's man, it's all those industrial light and magic effects that to me, they undo the, the thing for me. And the yeah. fact that the scariest, goofiest stuff happens to the people we don't really know, like dude, dude, man peeling his face off. I'm not scared by that. I am scared mm-hmm. by that tree, though. Yep. I wouldn't want to be, you know, so there's scary stuff in it. So I don't want to just diss on poltergeist. But it, I'm yeah. not sure, Joel. Tell me, what is it that it really connects with people? Is it the fact that it's this sort of this prefabbed, like uh, late '70s, early '80s home that they live in that yep. it was like our homes? And yep. it's the familiarity, right, that really gets you. It's, the members it's of the, the familiarity, family. Mm-hmm. and it's the uh, yeah. I mean, they are a quote unquote, like pretty prototypical family. Uh, and the fact that I think it's what you said, the fact that it all starts with the youngest, uh, child and it's, you know, and it's, she's adorable, uh, Heather or Heather O'Rourke playing, uh, playing Carrie, uh, Carrie, 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 I don't know, Carol, Carol Ann. That's I was like, that's not right. Carol Ann. (laughs) Um, uh, but yeah, so it, you know, and I think it's that it's, it, it speaks to the vulnerability that you feel, you know, when you have a young child, uh, and you want to protect them. Um, and in this case, no matter what you do, you're, you're not able to, it has, um, the film sort of wisely skips that our child is missing what you actually have to do when that happens. And it goes right mm-hmm. to the supernatural investigation. Right. You sort of assume that the police or somebody was involved in this at some point, right. but it, it just goes right past that. You know, yep. the, the two cats that wrote the script for, um, poltergeist when they met with steven spielberg they were sort of offered one or two jobs he said there's two stories i kind of want to tell i want to 
I want to do a remake of a guy named Joe, which is one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid. And I want to make a, like a suburban haunted house story. And they're like, Oh, can we do the haunted house story? <laughs> like, they really, We're like, please, please mm -hmm. that one. And it does have the feeling of like every cool idea is, is put in there. You know, I remember yeah. when I first saw the, like every haunted house story they had is crammed into this film for whatever reason. And it does work because, because that is kind of how it would be that the less explained any of it is. So the more effective it is. I love the chairs sliding around and the piling themselves up on the table. That's still one yeah. of the most, the coolest, like just practical cutaway one shots ever really in movies. Yeah. It's that good. And you you freak out like she does when she comes back around the corner and they're all like piled on top of each other like a sculpture in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. I love that scene. So there's things in in Poltergeist that I just adore. Yeah, um, it, I mean, it's a for me. It's a couple of the. I mean, I hate clowns. Always hated clowns. So yeah, yeah. that was so. I, you what know, what a terrible toy to buy for your child. A clown that is the same size as them. Blech. Yeah, no, they, what not not well done, um, and then um, yeah, uh, and then it like the the scene in the uh, the rain and the it, the pool with all the skeletons and the mud and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, but they're um, all that, just dead. You know? I know, but that 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 gets me for some reason. That one gets me. <laughs> it's always creeping me out. It's it's you know, uh, oof, that one's tough. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I you know. Uh, you know poltergeists yeah i mean and it really kind of and again we had never really heard you know we've had ghost stories we had we've had haunted house stories and things like that yeah but it's but always the idea old creepy of, house down the street they, there really is tons of mileage that they get out of this yeah. that it's just anybody's house with a yeah. tv and a, a refrigerator and all the stuff that is all familiar yep. um yeah, that's, and, that's... and we'd never heard of this idea of a poltergeist. And that word is so spectacular. You know, oh, yeah. thank you, Germans, again, for such a great poltergeist. You oh. nailed it, Germans. Way to it's, go, a great, Germany. it's a fantastic word. And, you, and, it's, and it's all, I guess that became something of a franchise to some degree, but it's all that movie's yeah. own. You can't do it again. Yep. You can't even really say that word again without thinking of this movie. And if that's not... Uh, if that's not like a, a testament to how successful something was, then the nothing is. It's yeah. that, it's a word that was something, and now it's that film. Period. And then, and then when you want to like up the, and I mean this with all respect, and she is great, but when you want to up the weird factor even more, you bring in Zelda Rubinstein playing a weird character. Or uh, Zelda. Yeah, she Zelda hated making in. Poltergeist because oh, I'm sure that was that whole sequence was the time when Spielberg was on set with them, and he kept giving her contrary notes and acting direction to what Toby was telling her, and she absolutely had a meltdown on set and said, "We can only have one director here," and Spielberg had to back off basically because he wasn't yeah. the director of the movie. He, he needed to be reminded of that a couple of times throughout. He's still given, I think, 96% of the credit for Poltergeist, you know? It, right. To say he didn't direct it is accurate because he didn't. He wasn't even there for most of it. But he did executive produce it, you know, the same way Lucas did for Empire Strikes Back. His 
his imprint is still all over it. It was his editor that was working on it. He had a whole different editing team working on E.T. across town, but he made sure that Michael Kahn was doing Poltergeist because they had the shorthand and he could be very, very involved in the editing. And he had control of all the post-production and he supervised the effects. So to say Spielberg didn't do a lot of the directorial responsibilities for Poltergeist is, is would be incorrect. But to just say that he directed it with Toby Hooper as some sort of... Um, just scanned it. Yeah, exactly. It is completely wrong. Toby was was on set every day, pointing the camera and deciding what happened, and doing that show. And so he gets he gets all the credit for that and should mm-hmm. continue to. It's it's. It, I don't know how a legend like that spreads because it's so. If you've ever worked on a movie, it's so impossible that the that the legend could be the case without literally hundreds of people knowing. Yeah. And you can't get anybody who worked on that movie to say that Toby didn't direct it because he did. Right. So just I, I'm not a giant Poltergeist fan, although I do really, really like it. I do watch it once a year. Um, I do treat it like a big summer movie and not like a spooky Halloween horror movie. So I watch it like this time of year. Um, yeah. So I dig it. But it it but what I really want to impress upon people is that is that Toby Hooper directed that film. Make no mistake about it. In every way you think of, maybe he didn't in some of the ways you don't think of, but in every way you think of, he he absolutely did. And when it came time for the actors to pick who their director should be, they picked him. (laughs) Right. Because he he was directing the movie, you know. Um, Zelda, Zelda's freak out was at the heart of that. Yeah. Um, the, I, I want to, uh, do a quick plug. There's a, a great new, um, docuseries on Disney plus called, um, called light and magic all about the early days of ILM. And, um, the, they talk about after, uh, you know, while they were trying to get, um, while they were waiting to do empire strikes back, you know, Lucas essentially like tried to find, he was like, it, you if any of my friends ask you to do um, to do some special effects work, do it, you know, because he was just trying to find ways to keep everybody em- employed in, in that, you know, in the building uh, and keep them together because he knew he had Empire coming down. And Poltergeist was one of the films where ILM, you know, they just shopped it out to ILM to let them do it. It was kind of the early that was the early part of ILM becoming its own production you know. some of the effects even the whizzy whiz bang like i don't know what to call it the weird glowy magical spirit effects or whatever the hell those are you know all those yeah. little balls of light and stuff wishing around the room those those actually look pretty fantastic to me even though i think they undermine the horror to a certain degree i think they really are awesome i think sure. some of the effects that they did in it are corny and they don't work and the the floating kids crap in the room is a terrible effect. It, it looks awful. It looked bad in 1982. It looks bad. It looks even worse now. And more to the point because it 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 it's not scary. It's just weird. It's funny. There's a weird visual gags built into it that don't help. So there's this everything but the kitchen sink in the movie that is kind of mm-hmm. cool. Um, but the, I think that takes some of it down. I, if they were on such a good 
you need a big ending, you know, so I don't really object to that. I like the, when they're having that conversation between her and the next world and, you know, run, and they're giving her all mixed messages. Run to the light, run away from the light, run to the light, run away. Mm -hmm. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. There's this great chaos and madness to it all. Um, you know, because they got to figure out what's going on to the degree that they can. I like all that. I like the, I like the old timey spirits from the 1890s or whatever. Yeah. I wish, I really wish, although this would have been corny, but I wish one of those guys would have rode by on one of those bikes with the big front wheel. Anytime <laughs> you can get into that, into your oh, movie, you should yeah. do it. What's more 1890s than that? He could have had there a bowler go. hat on. Better that, it could have been two twins on two identical bikes racing each other. That would have been hilarious. Hey, yeah. why not go for it? But uh, that's the deal with Poltergeist. Yeah. Uh, All right. So it's good. Uh, yep. And, uh, and it's a on great, that same... great way to start the summer. I always yeah. thought Poltergeist came out um, after the other big uh, Amblin Entertainment production of the year, but it didn't. And it's great that it didn't. Yeah, these movies here that came out right here in this early June slot were smart. Right, they were smart. Yeah, part, well, Pol yeah, I mean, Poltergeist uh, like by a week gets in. Uh, but uh, the other movie that came out that weekend um, was uh, you know a, another uh, beloved franchise we just mentioned her, Nichelle Nichols, in uh, arguably the best of the Star Trek movies, Star Trek Two. The Wrath of God. Um, Star Trek Two is so awesome. I don't know. We we mm -hmm. if Poltergeist, we could do a whole show on that. I think Michael would want to do it with us. I think that would balance things out because I don't love it. I really do sort of pick yeah. it apart its moments, even though it's much much greater than the sum of its parts. The big ending with the house getting sucked into the earth and them going to the hotel and shoving the TV out the door. What a fantastic last shot of a film. Uh -huh. um, so Poltergeist is pretty great. It, same weekend, sort of counter-programming, although they were both PG BG movies. There was no PG-13 yet, but they're both essentially PG-13 movies. Yeah. Um, Star Trek was great. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is fantastic. It's like a we would treat it like a... Um, like a reboot today, you know what I mean? And they didn't, they weren't rebooting it because they had any, they had any problems with the first movie, which was a decent sized hit back in the Christmas of 79. They were rebooting it because they just kind of had to, because they couldn't do that kind of movie again, basically. So mm -hmm. they, they did a crazy thing where they hired two outsiders who'd never worked on Star Trek before. Harv Bennett, the producer who was basically a TV producer and um, Nicholas Meyer, who hadn't seen a lot of Star Trek and wasn't super interested in Star Trek. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but, but what Nick did that was great, they were, and they had these like five scripts, so they gave them all to Meyer when he came on board, and they were like, well, I don't know, pick one or whatever. <laughs> and he sat down with Bennett and what they did, and why the, part, a huge reason this movie's so good is they took... They wrote down, they read all the scripts that were available for Star Trek II, and they took everything they liked from each one and mushed it all together into one movie. And Star Trek II really is one of those films that has all the great big ideas, all the great little ideas, and every scene 
counts on multiple levels throughout. And it, and so even though it's not the big ornate, like we were trying to be 2001, except with the old Star Trek crew, like, like uh, Star Trek, the motion picture was, it's got half the budget, but it really gets down to those tough decisions at the captain's chair, why they're made the big philosophy of science and it absolutely fantastic pulled from way back in the earliest parts of the show. Villain, played by a guy who at this point in his career, Ricardo Montalban, had essentially become a... He'd become like a TV, like a commercial pitch man, really. Because yeah. after Fantasy Island, what was he really going to be? You know what I mean? Um he came into it. I could tell stories about Star Trek Two all day. I'm sure when we do our 19 episode Star Trek <laughs> deep dives, I will do just that. But the one I will tell you is that he, uh, Ricardo, was so excited to be a part of this. He's so into getting his costume and stuff, and and just like loving to be in front of the big Panavision cameras on a big Hollywood movie. It'd been years for him, as far as that goes, and. And he just came on like a big ball of thunder in his first scene. And Nick Meyer, who's only directed one other movie that was time after time, which was really, really intimate compared to this, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, kind of took, uh, didn't really take him aside, but kind of got with him after their first round of going through this. And he goes, you know, you know what I think's really cool? Like, I don't know if you agree, but, you know, when, when, when like somebody's, you know, really really kind of mad but but kind of holding it all back you know what what do you think of that and ricardo's <laughs> response was oh you are going to direct me this is good this is really really good i need direction <laughs> you know what i mean like he got so excited that that, that he wasn't going to be left to float on his own as the bad guy in this film and the reality is is that ricardo is in charge of all the scenes that he's in. He's not really in any scenes. I don't want to say any, but he's in hardly any scenes with the rest of the crew. Even when right. he's talking to his nemesis and our hero, Captain Kirk, it's through a TV screen. Like, they were never on set or part of the same movie, really. They shot two separate movies, the good guys and the bad guys. Yeah. And and so Nick says, you know, that, that relationship with Ricardo was, was the, the most that was the closest and tightest that I had working on that movie. And he really did want to collaborate in the most desperate way. And by the end of the film, because he starts out and he, if you watch the scene, when Khan shows up, he is cool as a cucumber, but there's rage behind his eyes. It really is exactly that bit of direction that he got. Mm -hmm. And he just took it and played it to, to perfection. And by the end of the movie, where his face is falling off and he's, screaming like shakespearean quotes yeah, yeah, the moby thing. dick and, yeah he's yeah he's screaming the moby dick quotes out of right the, <laughs> you you it's been this thing that builds just perfectly to get there and yeah. it's a stunner you know and I, like i said well i don't want to spend too much time on this movie because this show is running long already and this is the third movie but this, <laughs> star trek 2a it was one of the first, it was one of the early summer movies, so it got its yep. due. The critics loved it. It was a big hit. Poltergeist the same. Rocky III is the same. These were movies all did really, really well on the year. Mm -hmm. um, and it really, I really believe in my heart that uh, that the timing of when they decided to come out 
absolutely was a major, major part of why they are considered successful. But Star Trek II is considered successful because it really, with half the resources, gets back to what Star Trek is, and yet it really very effectively does the big screen, widescreen, cinematic space adventure every way that you want. And that's 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 Bennett making it work on a shoestring, but it's Meyer. Mm-hmm. It's Meyer's coming from this world of literature and just infusing all these great science fiction ideas into the film with that, with that, with the authority of, like you say, Melville, Shakespeare, Dickens. It's all in there. And that it's yep. so audacious to load that film up with that stuff. And yet it does, and it works. And it is, the for my money, it is. It's not by a lot, but it is the best big screen Star Trek film ever for that reason, because that's that stuff just works, just works fantastically well. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, we'll, I, I, yeah, the Star we'll Trek. We'll be back. I, I don't feel we'll bad leaving it at that, because we'll be back. We'll be back to Star <laughs> Trek 2. We'll um, revisit Poltergeist. It'll happen. You'll see. And we'll really, really get into the nuts and bolts of it. But yep. Summer 82, our, baby. It's a lot yep. left. Our next, movie, our next movie is a comedy. Came out the you know the following week. A comedy directed by Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Um, and starring uh, G- uh, Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner called Hank. And I should say, and friend of the show, J.O. Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, called Hanky Panky. Woo! Um, I was not, Hanky Panky's PG rated too, but I was not allowed to watch it because of its title when I was a kid. Because mom and dad could look at the name of that and go, oh, that's not for you. Which is too bad because you watch it later and it's not as good as if you saw it in the day. But it's still, it's still a pretty fun, really fun Gene Wilder movie. This is the second Gene Mm -hmm. Wilder, Sidney Poitier team up. Poitier directed Stir Crazy as well. A lot of people forget. Um, so he, of his, of Poitier's directorial projects, most of them were screwball comedies, which I think is crazy, but it's kind of awesome. Um, and of course this is a film where Gene and Gilda Radner met and that became one of Hollywood's great true love affairs, honestly. And, and it, that, you know, that energy, sometimes you do capture that on film and that's really what this film has going for it. Cause this the script and some of the gags aren't great, but Wilder is, he's so good during this era and mm-hmm. Gildas is fantastic. And she's, and what's even better about her is she's, it's impossible for her to be a straight person. She has to kind of be one, which is great because you could see her actually act and not just do sketch comedy like on Saturday Night Live. But yeah. she can't just be that. She just isn't that in life so the performance you get out of her is fantastic too and i i like hanky panky read the the synopsis so that because i'm not yeah, really sure. going to go um, into the the winding plot of the yeah, comedy the, plot yeah, of the thing the real quick uh imdb blurb is completely innocent man michael jordan that's yeah, Michael that, Jordan. A uh, completely innocent man, Michael Jordan, is drawn into a web of government secrets when a girl carrying a mysterious package gets into a taxi with him. When she's later mur- murdered, Michael becomes the chief suspect and goes on the run. That's it. And then uh, while he's on the run, he meets uh, Gilda Radner. So I, I don't so want people to think that Gilda Radner is the one who gets killed or anything. You know, 
Um, it's not. No, no, She's no. Not. Well, we ruined that part for you, but I suppose that's just a synopsis. You know that when you're watching the movie, so it's not really. Right. A, it's trying to capture the that it's a comedy, but it's trying to capture that there's danger afoot thing that Silver Streak was so great at. Um, you know, and it does. It's pretty good. It's not as good as Silver Streak, but it's it's really very good. And and yeah. if you ha haven't seen it, if you're a Gene Wilder fan and you haven't seen it, you what, of course you've seen it. But because it was one of his bigger hit films, but mm -hmm. but you, sh you it's worthy well, of a and also and also, hey, it's Sidney Poitier as a director. Get, take a look at what Sidney Poitier is doing behind the camera too, if if, if that interests you. Sure, and yeah. and and like. Uh, poltergeist is uh, not it's just some of the fashions and stuff and and the but it's 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 it, it's not a super it's hard to explain what i'm trying to say here but it's not a super 80s movie there's a timelessness to it mm -hmm. the haunted house story you know uh wrath of Khan obviously isn't because it's some other world altogether at the end Merritt butrick comes in at the end with a with like a sweater tied around his neck and you're like oh my god this guy just walked out of a early 80s country club or whatever but other than that they're in the star trek fashions there's there you know it's timeless in a way hanky panky is a really awesome trip yeah. back to the early 80s in every way the hair the the locations the music all of it and it it's a fun one it's worth taking i think yeah um all right our next film is a little film you may have heard of directed by um uh, Steven Spielberg. Um, no, Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial. The Extraterrestrial. Don't leave that part off. That's part oh, of the official e. title, Joel. Yep, e and that's why I said it. E.T., The Extraterrestrial. E.T., the monster from outer space that ate the summer of 1982. Just Correct. gobbled it up whole. What is, uh, what's Andre Brower say in Brooklyn nine, -Nine? He's a monster. Did you cry yeah. at the end when E.T. When e. died at the end of E.T.? And What's-Her-Face is like, yes! <laughs> He's like, and the other chick who doesn't cry goes, uh, goes Rosa. Yeah, she goes, E.T. wasn't a monster. <laughs> so he caused quite a ruckus, is what he says. <laughs> yep. It's maybe my favorite exchange in all of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, of which there are many, but that one is... E.T. did cause quite a ruckus. You know, if you were uh, an authoritative law enforcement officer watching that movie, you might see it from a slightly different perspective. Those guys get their ass handed to them, and, and more so, they get humiliated and embarrassed. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's rough going. But E.T., man, what a... Just every time I see E.T., what a gorgeous movie. It's so otherworldly, beautiful, and magical. I, I, I The opening scenes with the collecting plants and stuff it's just it's it's it, it's it's our world but it's like from another world and the whole thing where the light sources are coming from and and it's just filled to the brim with magic and i love that uh, melissa matheson who had written uh black stallion or adapted it black stallion for the screen which was a huge hit had thought she was gonna quit screenwriting because she didn't think she could top that. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and um, uh, while they were working on uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark the year before, um, Harrison Ford had started 
dating her and Spielberg said, "Oh, we were going to we were going to use her for my next movie, but she she didn't want to do it." And he's like, "Oh, she should do that movie. I'll convince her." And he did. And the power of the script of E.T. is everything. There's a lot of improv stuff. There's a lot of Spielberg, that sort of magic he discovered. I think on Close Encounters, he didn't know for sure what he was doing. But he got this sort of amazing, magical kid performance out of uh, Carrie in, in Close Encounters. And this is very much uh, like... E.T.'s very much like a, a smaller scale, like step cousin of Close Encounters in a way. They do feel related in a way. They have they have that same sense of style to them. But this is a, more of a square image. It's this intimate thing with this little family living out in the suburbs, same as before. That scene where they're ordering the pizza and playing Dungeons and Dragons and what's the bad word that they that he calls them in the movie that makes D. Wallace laugh out loud? I can't remember. It's like I dick, dick breath or something, penis breath. <laughs> <laughs> like so, the way it's there's yeah. got a there's a, a bad news bears sort of way the kids talk to one another that's very lively and fun in the film. Um, the older brother and his friends are fun every time they show up. But the relationship of this kid with this kind-hearted kid who is. Peter Coyote says that the the scientist, you know, in charge of the America's like hunt down the aliens team says at the end, I'm glad, I'm so glad that he met you. And that's the crux of the story, you know, one of the mm -hmm. best bits of humanity. This kid with all this belief, really all he wants is another pet. But that relationship grows the way any friendship sort of grows, even a nonverbal one. It grows and becomes the sophisticated and meaningful thing throughout and and you know and et the life getting drained out of him we're all just still weep openly at that and then the big yep. when the when the chase when the john williams chase music kicks up at the end and they're the bicycle chase is absolutely fantastic it really um, is. And the 80s are filled with movies where, uh, you know, a flying saucer comes down and picks up the alien and takes them off to the heavens. But there's no better ever than it is in this. E.T.'s perfect. It captured the nation's imagination and they didn't want anything different. And the studios didn't have any other E.T.'s on tap. <laughs> they had a couple hidden in their piles of scripts, but they weren't going to show up until the summer of 84. So... Right. So all you really so you didn't have that and that's that's what the world wanted and ET survived in the cineplexes and on the limited amount of screens available in 1982 all the way till Halloween basically and things came and went but nothing and the list of movies we have coming up are impressive they are really are impressive and yep. none of them were able to make their mark in their day because ET he was that monster, and he did cause such a ruckus that it just wasn't room for anything but him in the summer '82. And I, I, you know, there. If you snuck in a week before, even you did okay. Yep. Week after, wait till you hear what came out the week after. The, <laughs> it's like you just didn't have a, that, you didn't have a prayer. You didn't have a chance. If for no other, I mean, you didn't have a, Neil Diamond. Wrote a song because he was so inspired by E.T. So did and, Michael and Jackson. We, 
and recorded yeah and recorded it and got it out there before the summer was even over just like oh my god i got i have to write this uh yeah i can't remember yeah it came out on his album the next year but get the single out while the getting is hot let's hop on the et bandwagon of course neil diamond was again like the rest of us it wasn't just some cynical cast grab he was already one of the richest musicians in america he was just moved moved tremendously by the story and wanted to be a part of it, wanted to express those feelings, and there you go. Yep. Turn on your heart light, man. Turn on your heart light. I found myself at a wedding when I was a teenager where I had to give a toast, and that's what I all I did was read the lyrics to that song. <laughs> that's spectacular. Well, I didn't know what to do. I was right. seven, 16, 17. Mm-hmm. I was too young. You didn't have the droll wit that you... Well, and the whole family now. was like Neil Diamond fans, you know. They were like Neil Diamond family. So they, mm. they, uh, some of the people got... You don't really get what you're singing until you get to the chorus or whatever. And if you right. read it, you really don't know what you're saying. But mm-hmm. they knew. Uh, the first couple lines, they knew right away. And then they laughed more when they realized I wasn't going to stop. I was going to read the whole song sure. and sit my ass down. Like that was going to... It wasn't just going to be some, you know... Webster's Dictionary defines marriage as dot, dot, yeah. Dot. <laughs> um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, all right. So, all right, we, you know, we have, there's much more to say on ET. And we'll oh, say my it goodness. Yeah. We're not even touching yep. on it, but y'all know what ET is. That's the thing. You don't e. have to say anything because. Yep. But hopefully we provided a little bit about what the heart of the thing was. And ET's right. If you, if this is where, you know, at the beginning of the Reagan era, if this is where our our entertainment was taking us thematically, then let's go. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is it. It's I I can be a little cynical about Poltergeist. I, I absolutely can't bring myself to about ET. I still am carried away by it to this day. I will say it's something really... about it. Now I'll save it for the ET. Yeah, let's save it for the ET. More. Um, yeah, save it for the great, ET cause... deep dive. Coming because yep. we got to get to this next film because this is um culturally as important um a film and um and that of course is it's because it's the dawn of the cool rider uh and that is uh heading back to school at Rydell High Greece two <laughs> all right now be careful what bad things you say about Greece two I know. This. I might poke the I might poke the bear on this one because maybe we'll get some public comments. Uh, yeah, get people going. Why? Because uh, no, Grease two, uh, Grease two sucks. Uh, I hate Grease two. What? I can't I hate do. it. Why I do, do you hate I, it? I don't know. I I mean I I think the song. I mean I I think the songs are are bad. The uh the support. I mean as much as I hey I love. I will champion Adrian Zemed as uh, as much as the next guy, but no, he's not. He's not tough. Um, you know, I I, I found him you know laughable. The rest of the T Birds are laughable. Um, the, the 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 soundtrack. I mean, the the song. Some of the songs are really fun, uh, but the incidental music is so cheesy it yeah, pulls yeah. me pulls me away well and look um, it even the songs even the ones that are good like you are following greece which is an all-time popular mm-hmm. stage musical whose songs um were buoyed greatly by the 1978 film um which until dirty dancing came out was pretty much the 
the Star Wars for the ladies out there. It it, mm-hmm. it had a shorter shelf life than some, but but I mean that movie was beloved by everybody. Even in the nineties when we were DJing and stuff, you put on that grease Grease Mega Mix is about eleven minutes and twenty seconds yep. long, and I could put it on, and I could go have a cigarette because I didn't want to listen to Grease either. But, but it was, but everybody was happy to hear it in almost any setting. You know what I mean? Whether I was in a club or whether I was at the wherever I was, everyone was happy to hear that, hear those songs or whatever. So yeah, you're following a monster, really. You don't get any of the original People Back Sands one. Um, and the original plan was to get as many back as possible and you got none of them back. So, I mean, that it's already weighted under that. It came out the same week as E.T. That's, it's really, it's going to take that trivia to bed with it for the rest of its life. Nobody saw it. Nobody saw this thing in the theater. Like har- hardly anyone saw it. It, it, and by the next week, by the time its reputation as being this, pale comparison of its predecessor came out nobody was gonna see it so it definitely flopped but it's from this era and this is the story of a lot of these movies to come and the grease 2 is no different it's from this era where it got played on hbo and showtime and it got proliferated it 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 got a poster of it hung in a video store and people of our generation particularly women and a couple of women i know personally and one that's intimately associated with this show love it mhm and so i am forced i've only seen it twice but i'm forced to go back to it when i saw it recently and go why 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 do you love that mhm <laughs> And I watched it with that in mind, and it's it. I mean, it's pretty neat. Michelle Pfeiffer's great in it. Um, Marine Tiffy's one of my favorite actresses from uh, Minnesota. Hashtag one of us. Um, yep. There are these really cool ancillary performances, and everybody's giving it a go. It's got a fun energy to it, um, and it's it's. I don't know. You don't like the side characters, but that's what I like. That's what I think is great about it. I think they're the, all the background players and all the little bit parts are, are infused with visual and, and, um, personality so that you recognize these people, even when they're not talking or when they're not doing whatever throughout the movie. And I really, really think that's fun. Um, but it's not grease. And I don't know that Grease is really that good a movie. The no, director no. who was making it like doesn't think he did a very good job. But Grease, Grease is so such a good musical that it transcends how you do it. That's why it works on stage at a junior high. It still works because it it it's you can't really mess mm-hmm. it up very badly if you can just kind of sing it and bark the sort of superficial lines out at each other, it, the thing plays to the end, and it, it, its essence comes to life before your eyes. So that was a movie you couldn't mess up. This was a movie that you could, and maybe even you didn't, but it was just the weight of being a second Grease film without that time-tested stage play to to back it up. You know, it, it flopped, but but it's... Our, our year of flops, you know, on the list of flops, it's a beloved one. It's a cult film. It's truly. Belo- yeah, no, I get it. <clears throat> I get it. And I'm fully prepared for um, uh, a lot of our listeners to come after me um, because I say Grease 2. Um, and it's, it's, it's by, sucks. It's not good. <laughs> it's, 
sucks. Mm. All right. Yeah. Fair it's, enough. Yeah, it's my opinion. Um, <clears throat> however, I mean, take take my opinion on Greece too for what what you will, because the next movie we were about to talk about, I was obsessed with as a kid. Yeah. I fell in love with the SR-71 Blackbird uh, spy plane. Um, you know, the, the, the movie is Firefox starring Clint Eastwood and directed uh, but to by me, Clint Eastwood and directed by Clint Eastwood. But to me, the, the star of it is, is this spy plane that's modeled after the SR-71. Eastwood seems to get that it's the star too, because the, the reveal in the film, when you first see that plane in, in you see pictures of it and stuff, but when you first mm -hmm. see it, the slow panning shot where we're watching it from our hero's point of view coming into this hangar is this and it's hard to explain it's this love letter to this plane that they designed for this movie yeah um but what i like best about firefox and people argue firefox doesn't hold up or firefox wasn't even good at the time maybe uh the uh, post-traumatic stress stuff the flashback stuff is handled in sort of a corny way but it was one of the first big mainstream mainstream films now a film that's not about Vietnam or the Vietnam experience where our actual espionage 80s slick hero is going through something like that is interesting mm -hmm. um, but it's it's just a great for a whole hour it's this great sneaking around behind enemy lines sort of story. There are these two really, really good actors. Three, there's four of them, really. But the two I'll mention by name are the one whose name I'm going to forget. Yay. So I have that mm -hmm. all up. Joel, start reading some names that are in Firefox. And Freddie we'll Jones! Yeah, David I love Huffman. Freddie Jones, but no. David Huffman, Warren Clark. Ronald Warren Clark. Ooh, hey, yeah. that didn't take long. Thank God. Warren Clark's a great British actor who plays a Russian spy who basically gets our hero where he needs to go. And all these Russian spies, all these, they're not spies. They're, that's what's great about them. They're, and that's why, it, that's what makes this story different. They're, they're Russians who are, who are, helping it despite the fact that they love russia they're complicated characters ronald lacy plays one i can't remember the couple to the scientists working on the ship but they're great as well mm -hmm. and it it and and even when our hero takes off in that plane sorry i'm skipping a lot of what's great about firefox but and heads to the skies and we got the whole ending which i think i still love it i think it looks great I there's a lot too. of it, it's a little rough on TV when you cut the film in half. So growing up watching it on videotape, it didn't look that great. But I think when you zoom out and see how they framed these shots and how they did this airplane stuff really mm -hmm. with like Star Wars blue screen effects, there's no actual planes flying around. So it, it, it was tricky to do. I think it, this stuff looks really, really great. And even when it doesn't look great, it, it, it supports the story enough, like the story elements are enough that you that you get into it. At least I still get into it and buy it. Right. Um, so it's that mix of stuff. And this was an adult thriller. So this film, even though it came out right after E.T., like some of the rest of these, this movie did okay. Eastwood had a built-in audience. They all right. showed up for it. This film was monetarily and 
special effectsy like uh, on a big much bigger scale than anything he had done before so it it needed to be a bigger hit to be considered a hit but it was a big enough hit and yep. i love firefox and i i mostly love it because uh eastwood cast himself in this perfect role for him which is this man of little words a stoic guy who's going through some hell on the inside but not sharing it with the rest of the world and because of that, everybody else in the movie gets to be sort of extra charactery, extra flamboyant, and that's the fun of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, even Kenneth Kenneth Coley, I want to say, is the actor's name, also a British yep. actor. Um, he's he's best known as Admiral Piet in the Star Wars films, but he plays sort of the 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 point man on the let's hunt down the Firefox team who makes all the wrong decisions, but he could have been a clown. If that's all he was, these other people surrounding him, they bring in another pilot. They bring in all these people that are, these feel like these well-rounded lived in characters. And yeah, that's the minimal the movie should be doing. But at this time and going forward, movies didn't bother with that. They wanted, they wanted to just have it be silly and have the stakes, feel low and fun and this movie never does that his mission it is impossible and and they earn that it comes off in the end and that's the satisfying thing about firefox if you're not an eastwood fan it's hard to imagine you'll be able to get through it so there's that but if you if you like him a lot and somehow skip firefox Firefox, because of its sort of blo- failed blockbustery reputation, I you should revisit it. It's a it's a really accomplished film. It's one of his better directed films because, and I say that just because of the inherent challenges within are tough to overcome. So right, um, yeah, I I I could not agree more with everything that you say. I sort of feel like you know you mentioned um, <clears throat> E.T. If this is where our movies are going in the 80s, you know, then bring it on. I sort of feel like movies went a little bit more in the Firefox vein um, as the 80s went on. Well, it's a Cold War thriller, you know. It it is. It very Mm -hmm. much is. It's kind of the Cold War thriller, you know, until you get to something like Hunt for Red October. But but it's very Hunt for Red October-ish. It's... it doesn't have the big fun ensemble that that film has, but it, it has that same awesome energy to it. You know, the Ruskies are trying to start World War Three, and we got to stop them. We got to even the playing field. And that's that's high stakes. And then add in the other elements and it carries off right. pretty well, I think. I, I will. Yeah, I will also say it's kind of uh, Hunt for October before Hunt for October in the sense that you have, you know, you have these guys who are like, this is a first strike weapon. The The whole idea of mutually assured destruction and right. having that balance, yep. for, it's as important to some Russian people as it is to some American people. And so it's like when something comes to, that's definitely going to tip the scale, it's like, oh, we can't really have the, this. We kind of need to get that balance back. And, and um, like uh hunt for red october its secret weapon is all of these russian characters who are awesome and that's something that these that that a more militant thriller just wouldn't bother with all the russians would be bad and all the americans and the brits would be good and that'd be it and this film is just much much more complicated than that very much to its credit that's to me in the end that's why it holds up that's why it's not just a relic of its era 
because the Russian characters are are complicated and cool and mm-hmm. even more than our our straightforward gruff hero. They're fully fleshed out and interesting, and that's that's not a tribute to Clint the actor. It's a tribute to Clint the director who makes sure that yep. shit comes alive on screen. Warren Clark is just fantastic in it. I can't say enough about him. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a great flick. I yeah. watch it all the time when I came on a home video. Um, all right. <clears throat> Speaking of uh, gruff hero, what better person to have as your dad, and also raising your raising stepkids? Uh, uh, the head whole, the head of a large family uh, is uh, probably best personified by Al Pacino, an author, author. <laughs> Is this a, technically a divorce movie? It isn't really. Not really. It's like a no, more. Because, it's I, like a more serious version of Mr. Mom, maybe. Yeah. Al Al Pacino starring in a movie whose script was by his muse and uh, Israel Horowitz. We talked about this quite a bit, actually. This relationship back in the because um, I'm gonna blow through author author just because we're yep. running out of time. Um, back in the. Uh, What's the name of my favorite actor again? I can't remember. Uh, name of your favorite actor? Yeah, what's his name? Should I just know this? Yeah, we did uh, a whole show on him. He was in a bunch of Al Pacino oh, movies. Cassavetes. Yeah. Yeah. No, Casali, John Casali. Casali, John Casali. You, you got yeah. close enough. Thanks. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes it's see you guys. It's not that I don't know things. It's oh. that sometimes things just go across the room and hide in the corner, and I can't find them. <laughs> Yep. I know shit. Yeah. But the the words are difficult occasionally. John Casale, anyway, we did a whole episode on him where we talk about Pacino, Casale, Israel Horowitz, their work on the stage together and their work in film. Uh this is an extension of that. This is a lovely 70s movie, kind of like Shoot the Moon, kind of like the other ones we've been talking about who just found itself in 1982. <laughs> without a home but Pacino was a big enough star at the time that it didn't really matter this film did okay and it it's still recognized as a pretty good movie but it is you know when you see it next to Firefox and all this grease too and all this stuff it really you can see what a fish out of water it really is especially as a yeah. summer movie release I like author author so I I would say you know check check it out definitely it, it it's but for a Pacino movie of this era, it's actually not been one of the easy ones to find. Who Remind me who directed it, Joel. Uh, it was directed by Arthur Hiller. Yeah, so again, very old, you got this old school group of guys, these 60s superstars coming together to make a, a film in the early 80s. And I think they're, I think it's the last gasp of that to some degree. There's a couple of movies coming up here that, that, still to come by the end of the year. One of which, God bless you fans for writing in, and God bless you for choosing this movie twice. We won't get to that until our next show, but it's awesome. Thank you for doing mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. It's Author, authors, read the synopsis so they know what it's about. That'll help them remember it. But then Yeah, we'll while on. facing the stress of his play being produced on Broadway, a playwright deals with having to raise his son, his stepdaughters, and his stepsons. So it's um, it's a single dad movie of the eighties, which with yeah, and the, the 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 wife is leaving and saying screw uh, leaving my four kids with you as well. 
right. this person who, you know... Because that happened all the time. Look, author, author is really, really good. It's a nuanced movie about a play by a playwright about a playwright going through this situation. It's really good. But I mm -hmm. should say, um, E.T. has this. There's these hints of it, but it's not about this, but it has it. It has the single mom at the heart of it. The single mom in America was a very, very real thing at this time. The mm -hmm. single dad was a gimmick to sell movie tickets. And I'm not saying that there weren't single dads out there, but... But when that was the topic of the movie, it was the whole movie. You see what I'm saying? Yep. And that's a raw deal. Because there should be damn, should be, you know, there should be more movies about single moms. And that's what the movie's about. Well, yeah. And yeah, they, I, mean, I really feel, like, there are some, but I really feel like there aren't enough by comparison, which is just another way that like, Hollywood is Like Max, Max Dugan Returns is, you know, is not a movie about a single mom. It easily could be a movie about a single mom. It, right, and it and it ha is a movie about a single mom in a way that relationship is there. E.T. is about a single mom. It really very much is, but yeah. it isn't. That isn't what the movie is. Um, yeah. Maybe that's the way to deal with these topics, perhaps. But I, I just saying that it, and I hate for author author to carry the brunt of that. That's really for movies like Mr. Mom, and you know right. where it's all just it's. Uh oh, dad has to vacuum right. the floor. And we get, uh, how is well, he going to do it? It's just like yeah, we truly get that, and we get that a lot in sitcoms of the '80s too. Very uh, much you know, so. The, yeah. the idea of flipping, uh, f flipping the traditional gender roles on, uh, you know, on their head, uh, you know, who's the boss, uh, that sort of thing. Um, all right. Um, <clears throat> Next up is a movie uh, I don't think we'll talk about very much because we have a deep dive on this coming very soon, um, and that is Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Um, a little little subtle movie uh, that I think I, I I don't know how many people have heard of it. It you know it's not really talked about, um, but Blade Runner came out in June of eighty two. And um, yeah, uh, what, Blade I'll, Runner, I'll just turn it over to you. What do you want to skip say ahead. about it? Let's just yeah. skip ahead to the other movie that came out this same weekend. Sure, it is a movie called The Challenge. No, Wait, no, no. John, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the thing. Sorry, the thing. John Carpenter's The Thing and Blade Runner came out on the same weekend, a couple weeks after ET. Mm -hmm. And they were the wrong movies. They were the <laughs> wrong movies. They made the wrong movies, you know what I mean? When uh, the writer and director, William Friedkin, is sitting down watching um, Sorcerer, which was very famously the film that came out the week after Star Wars in 1977, the writer said, we made the wrong movie. <laughs> that was his reaction. We, we missed a zeitgeist by a week, and we're mm -hmm. effed because of it. And Blade Runner and The Thing, both of which will get their own shows, so you're right, we don't need to dwell on them too much, um, were the wrong movies at the wrong time, and they, yet they are both absolute stone-cold... Uh, I don't want to say they're unimpeachably great, there's things you can criticize about both of them, but, but that only makes them more real and more, you know, like... Yeah. It, their flaws really make them a fully fleshed out thing. They don't, they don't ruin them. They help them become the awesome real things that they are. The thing is the story of this, uh, 
crew, scientific crew in Antarctica who discover some unstoppable human virus that can mimic whatever cells it comes in contact with, all the way up to entire people. And the paranoia that goes with that and the, the isolation of the, of the um, location mixed with the tension that's already amongst these science guys and support staff that are this masculine group of competitive people to begin with just sends the thing soaring into the stratosphere as a mood piece, as a horror movie. The makeup effects in it are incredible. Blade Runner, likewise, is the very first sort of Mobius-inspired cyberpunk tale ever told in the cinema, and it's still the best one. It's never been topped. Mm -hmm. uh, unless, Joel, do you think Johnny Mnemonic is better? or uh, I do not. Just making sure. Uh, no, no, you, I, it's a fair question. Two hater. But I do not. Yeah, it's it's a <laughs> it's visually stunning movie. It's audibly a stunning movie like what you see what you hear what you experience um whereas the thing is this tight intimate spooky paranoid claustrophobic thing blade runner is this massive expansive uh larger than life and yet run down and frightening world of the future where all these magical nightmarish things exist and it it and yet it tells this quintessential like all great Philip K. Dick stories, which Blade Runner is based on. It tells this quintessential: What are we? Who are we anyway? But ultimately, that's the question: What does it mean to be a person? <laughs> it's and yeah. that feels like a little question, but it's the biggest question there is. And when cinema boldly wraps that up in this perfect like dystopian science fiction burrito you end up with a near perfect film and both of these are near perfect and both of them just came out and pfft, they just splat at the box office they came out to big acclaim because they were made by big accomplished directors um but the reviews were bad for them which is crazy because they're beloved now you i defy you to go find a bad review of blade runner that was written it's from 1990 to present. I don't think you can mm -hmm. find one. And you shouldn't be able to because it's amazing. But at the time, people were like, eh, eh. it seems like Ridley Scott cares more about his art direction than his characters. You know, that's it. And to be fair to Blade Runner, I didn't really love it when I first saw it. I was hypnotized by it, but I didn't really love it because it didn't really get it. It's one of those films that takes time to live with and to decode and to figure out. It is that deep it might even be that deep by accident but whatever the case it is that deep it's worthy of uh extreme meditation as any kubrick film ever made so blade runner is amazing but it 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 went it fell down went boom <laughs> <laughs> and the thing which was a much more modest movie but also just the wrong movie, man. These mm -hmm. ultra-violent, adult-themed science fiction adventures were exactly the wrong thing. They were the anti-ET. There was nobody wanted the anti-ET. Nobody. ET was so good that whoever you were, you were into it. All right. It wasn't like, oh, can we please get a movie? Blah, blah, blah. There were some people, they went to see author, author, and they're like, 
thank God, a movie oh, that's not about God, aliens. Yeah. But Blade Runner, that wasn't going to impress those people. So it ultimately right. impressed nobody. A hard, both of them, hard R-rated adult science fiction, um, mystery horror tales, and right. both went nowhere. And yet, both are both are as good of things as there's ever been in those categories. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side of hard R sci-fi, we um, we get our first maybe um, sorry excuse me uh, our first uh, G-rated movie. I think it's the first G-rated movie of the summer. Um, Let's just say it yeah. is. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, I think that's right. Oh, and and it kicks off July, so we have moved into the 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 uh, sultry month of July and you got to get your kids out of the go, heat we're only one month into the summer my goodness we'll have to no we'll, we'll have fine. to pick up the pace we will be fine because we'll pick up the pace on on, on a lot of these because uh July isn't July is not June June of 1982 no. wow yeah buckle up because that was a that's a big time that's a big time uh month but uh, it get, kicking off July is one of my favorite animated movies of all time. Uh, a movie that I watched over and over and over and over again, um, and just loved it from uh, from the uh, uh, beautiful mind of Don Bluth back when uh, Don Bluth would animate films to compete with Disney. It is the secret of Nim. Well, it's not really from Don Bluth's mind. It's based yeah, well, on a but, really, really good short story yeah. where... Miss and, Frisbee and the Rats are named, yeah. And I had read on, had the unfortunate uh, coincidence that I, I hadn't read it. I had it read to me, thus was my age at the time. But I had it read to me, that story, before I saw the movie. And when I went to see the movie, I was like, where is it? Where's the thing that they read to me that was so awesome? It's not here. It, it's told in flashback for about three minutes in the movie. It's the story that it's based on. And I was just, yep. I was so devastated by that that for years I really didn't like uh, Secret and M. But it is really good. I mean, it's a really, mm-hmm. really good Don Blue film. And in fact, if you take the Don Blue films, American Tale, this one, what's Anastasia's the the kind of the last one, and you just look yep. at all his work throughout, and through this era, they're all better than the Disney films until you get right. to until you get to the Ashman Mencken musicals, A Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and such. You, he was the one making the great animated movies. He right. used to be a Disney employee, and when he left, he took the magic with him to some degree. I think um, there were still a couple good ones. In and about, we found out that Fox and the Hound was an '80s movie. I had no idea, or late '70s. I didn't know. No, that. it was that '80s. Yeah, '80s. 80s. Rescuers was late '70s. That's fantastic. So, I don't want to say that Disney movies sucked or anything. That's not true. But Bluth is awesome, and Secret and M is such a cool. It's a perfect '80s tale. You know, it really is. I don't know the the story elements are just so magical and cool. And if you had to do a story about talking animals, their problem that they're going through seems like a simple problem that mice would actually have. <laughs> and yet, yeah. and yet what they've got to do, it's an insurmountable problem. If you're a mouse, that's really cool storytelling somehow. I think um, that's the premise of the story, which is great. I think what you miss is sort of the origin story of these super intelligent rats. And I think they're, 
their human sophistication is replaced with magic. You know, it's it's right. okay, but it not the same to me. But what? Why do you love Secret and M? I don't. I I I was waiting for this question. I knew that this was coming. Well, um, you just you, the way you started it no, out and introduced it. I feel like I got. But ask. I know, and I do, and I do. I love it. I absolutely love it. I I think ultimately, I think what I love about it is, uh, it it as a kid watching it, it trusted that I was going to be okay being scared. Um, and and. It is. It's dark. It is a dark yeah. film, um, and uh, I mean there there are elements of you know the they have a comic relief. Uh, Dom DeLuise is in it. You know, mm-hmm. I, all of. I mean, I get, it, but the movie isn't. The movie is is gonna scare the crap out of you. Is it wants to, and um, and I think I appreciated that. Um. There is and, a real threat element to it. Even yeah, uh, what, what's the name of the guardian rat? The Jason? Or, I, am I remembering that right? Jeremy, With the glowing eyes. Yeah. Uh, let's see. No. What? Um, let's see, there's Justin. Either either way, yeah. They, they, he, he's a good guy, and he scares you. <laughs> yeah. So there's this there is this thing where it's the mystery of it and the the spooky moodiness of it, it definitely comes to life on screen, even though it is, right. things do turn out. Okay. It's not watership down or anything, but it, it's, right. it leans that way just enough that it, it was surprising at the time. I would agree with you for a G rated movie, no doubt. And I just kind of gave my critique of it, but I own a half dozen, maybe eight or so out of thousands of movies that I have here. And that is one of the animated films I actually have and would not be parted with. So I really, really like it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love it. It's, it's really great. Um, and uh, I, I've, I tried on one occasion to introduce it to, uh, to my son. He was not interested. No, um, having it. Yeah. He's, he, he my broke your heart, Joel. Did he's he know broken he was my heart a few that? times. Well, he's breaking my heart. A few. I, I tried Did to introduce say, him to the Iron me, Giant. Let me just, Mola Ram your no, heart out. That, oh, and wait, why don't I dance around on it in front of you? That was more. That was more when I tried to introduce him to Iron Giants. Yeah. Um, Iron Giants te- is experiencing an anniversary today. Not to get too far off track. Yep. Today was its um, release day back in yep, two thousand. Uh, but it was. Uh, but yeah, he's uh, my. You know, I of course I obviously love my son. He he has different. At least as of right now, he still has very different. Uh, viewing tastes than I do. Uh, I, I'm trusting that I'll get there with him. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I'm sure. A... I'm sure you guys will see more eye to eye the more he's a teenager. Yeah, yeah. That's what um, always happens, right? Parents out there. <laughs> so I, yeah, I mean, well, I think he'll he'll start to yeah. I, I, as he'll just he just needs to get more exposed to more stuff and and. Uh, and that'll happen. But this is not the uh, po- the podcast about my son. This is a podcast about uh, the 1982, um, another sci-fi, another sci-fi flick. This one is the sci-fi, the science fiction of video games. And that is, of course, Disney's Tron. In all capital letters. Tron and the tragedy of Tron is the Tron <laughs> is the right movie. Tron is the right movie at the right time. 
It's the only the wrong time in the Tron is the only thing wrong with it is it's not E.T. <laughs> yeah. It's so sad in any other summer because Tron is really, really accomplished. It's really, really fun. It's really great for the whole family. It's really, really smart. Second only maybe to war games and sneakers as terms of getting computing right like it absolutely holds up because when you watch it today the relationships between the computer elements and humanity are correct the people who wrote it understood what was going on inside of a computer and use that as their inspiration rather than just you know oh now we built a, this huge computer and it's going to kill superman or hey i spilled seven up on a computer and now it's going to fall in love with me and stalk me you know, the ideas we had about computers were so stupid. And you go back and watch them all throughout the 80s. You're just like, God, we're so stupid. I mean, this is, this is we're just stupid. And when you watch Tron, you get smarter. So that's the first mm -hmm. great thing about Tron. The other great thing about Tron is there are three heroes. Um, uh, Jeff Bridges and Bruce Boxleitner are great foils for one another, and they're given this really cool girl to fight over, which is great. What's her name? Cindy Morgan. Yeah, uh, exactly. So it, those three characters, uh, buoyed by some other really cool characters, fantastic villain who's not the villain. I always, this is, it's funny, of all the great villains that the late David Warner played in film, all his villains were always... Their, their anger came from them not really being in charge. <laughs> There's an insecurity to them that this guy yep. has, Dillinger. I don't know. I can't remember what they call him in the in the Tron world. But, you know, all our characters live these uh, double lives in and outside the computers. Tron's animation's amazing. It's 70 millimeter photography is incredible. Its art direction and its design are really, really original and neat. It's, it's a silly child-like adventure mm -hmm. like chosen one story so yep. i don't want to say it's sark sark thank you i don't want to mm -hmm. say like it's too brilliant but it's it it was good enough to be a massive hit and it wasn't because of et just because of et no other reason because it's remembered as a big hit it's remembered as a successful movie the video games were huge it, there's no more visually iconic thing from the 80s than any everything tron truly you, you can't nail the look and feel of this era without that. And it's electronic musical score, which we praise is great and inspired a great sequel with an even greater electronic musical score. Um, it, because there's so much there, there's so much story that you can tell in this world that they created. Uh, but when the, when the, rubber hit the road and the money needed to start coming in to pay for a very expensive Tron. It didn't come in, not at the time. Right. Um, but it's, it, it, it is neat that it is one of these films that is appreciated and did sort of make its money and its reputation back as time went on. Tron's awesome. Tron's awesome. It, it, I love it. I, I don't, yep. I don't think it's like, again, it's not unimpeachably awesome. There's things, there's things that are silly about it. Some of the dialogue is really stupid where it could have just, been just a little not so stupid and it would have been a lot better movie but yeah. that's getting picky when you're having fun in a magical world that truly is like nothing you have ever seen before or experienced since i mean that's what else can a fantasy movie do that's <laughs> really yeah you no know, that's really an amazing thing so there you go um so uh when i um 
when I was living in New York, this was many, many moons ago, uh, I was rehearsing uh, a Christmas, a tour I was doing at Christmas and uh, at Chelsea Studios. And in the um, in the joining studio, uh, another show was rehearsing um, and it was the Kenny Rogers Christmas Spectacular. And so anytime I would sound check when we were uh, adding microphones and stuff, I would sound check to a different Kenny Rogers song uh, in my room because I just thought it was awesome that Kenny Rogers was next door. Um, and people are like, people are like, oh, I, yeah, you know, you know a lot about Kenny Rogers. And I'm like, oh, I really don't. Just Kenny Rogers was everywhere in the 80s. I said, Kenny Rogers, Kenny Rogers played a race car driver in a movie with like six orphans, you know, and he had like, orphaned kids that he had to take care of and they're like what and i'm like oh yeah it's a movie called six pack we uh, we can't spend much time on six pack we already talked about it in depth the way we would here back in the oh, i saw it on hbo show yep um so it's there it's had its due yep. here so we'll i may have s- used the same introduction to six pack uh, i don't think so uh, i think the introduction <laughs> to six pack was my 10 my turning 10 birthday movie oh sure. Our, my choices at the time on september 1st mm-hmm. were et or six pack that was it six pack was yeah. at the cheap theater et was still on every screen in everywhere and right. i'd seen et four times already um so I, we chose six pack which was pretty good that wasn't a bad way to go six pack's a very fun entertaining film it's a very fun it's very very toned down you know almost g-rated family version of like Smokey and the bandit it's a fun southern fried road movie with lots of with an evil sheriff <laughs> lots of fun comedy and stuff in it it's great i as i said at the time it's really fun watching um diane lane act circles around all the stars of the movie who are the mm. adults. She's so much a better actor than they are. And I, I think that's a treat when you watch it because she's yeah, reading yeah. the same crappy dialogue and it's almost worse coming out of her mouth because she can't, she can't just be cheesy. She's got to be good. So she's a good actor. Um, and that's all I'll say about six pack. Yeah. It was a fun birthday right. movie. It wasn't as fun as birthday movie when I turned 11, which was strange brew. It was yeah. pretty fun, and um, it was it, and it had a great song that again filled up the airwaves in the summer '82. Uh, Love will turn you around, which again, kind of like Eye of the Tiger, basically sums up the theme of the film, which I always think is neat. Yep. Um, all right. So uh, next movie is um, it, it's it's for the uh, the adults who did not want to sit through et again and they're like no nah, i don't want to see the violence of uh of conan the barbarian um i don't know do i i want to see sci-fi everything's sci-fi um how about some how about just some people getting their freak on um so let's go see summer lovers are they have you seen summer lovers <laughs> no i've never seen summer lovers i don't know because getting their freak is. on is probably not the the what the, it would be described as um read the synopsis though that'll be fun well the synopsis just says a young american couple and a french woman engage in a threesome in the greek islands that's sort of getting your freak on i suppose but it's yeah it's, that's yeah it's shot and experienced in a really very pedestrian way peter gallagher first time i ever saw him in a movie um daryl hannah who's the other woman 
Uh, I'm going to butcher her name, the but it's French uh, woman, right? Yeah, it's uh, Valerie Quinesson. Quin- yeah, okay. Sorry, French lady, we sort of screwed up your name. Stupid American. Oh, Valerie. Mm. Valerie Quinesson. Um, it, Summer Lovers isn't very good, but it, it was directed at somebody significant. Uh, it was directed by Randall Kleiser. Kleiser, so the director of Greece and uh, Blue Lagoon. Yep. And, and just, Flight of the Navigator. Yeah, and, and we talked about one of his movies too the other day. So he, Randall Kleiser is a guy you've never heard of who directed like some of the most famous movies of your life. It's kind of funny how he gets uh, brushed aside. Um, but he's a pretty good director. This is an interesting movie. He's trying to make an adult movie, but unfortunately he's making a movie that will only appeal to teenagers and it's rated R. So getting into a rated R movie, if you're 14 was not real tough in 1982. And I think that that worked. Uh, you were led in to watch double bills at, um, drive-ins and stuff. So this this was a movie for teenagers, very very famously. Matter of fact, maybe more famously, Eye of the Tiger, Love Will Turn You Around, um, It Might Be You, all the great '82 movie songs. This one featured uh, "Hard to Say I'm Sorry" by Chicago, which is so monumentally a bigger hit song than this was a hit movie that it that it that it isn't even really associated with the movie anymore. But that's what its purpose was. In fact, mm-hmm. Hard to Say I'm Sorry by Chicago was this weird two-part song where it starts out with a song you hear on the radio all the time, and by the time it's over, it's some other, like, party song where it's we're going right. to we're gonna go out and have a good time. And it's that always felt really, really strange. But what that song's trying to do is take the two elements of Summer Lovers and meld them together in a song, not necessarily easy but david foster and peter cetera did it in 1982 and they had a massive hit tune with it and good so if nothing else (laughs) so summer lovers you might not be good for anything except you know Mm -hmm. showing peter gallagher with his shirt off constantly um but you, if, you you inspired a huge hit song that I yep. really, really liked at the time and still kind of like when I hear it. It's a beautiful right. tune. If, uh, you know, and if you were looking for that sort of adult thing when you just, you know, you didn't want sci-fi, if only you would have waited one more week. Yeah. You could have gone and seen George Roy Hill's musical masterpiece, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, which is largely also considered a flop, was a, was the number seven box office champ of 1982. It it hit the spot, even though it yep. it it didn't make the headlines. It absolutely hit the spot as to counter programming and how that works. Mm-hmm. It, this was an adult movie; kids couldn't go see it. It was a musical. It was everything E.T. was, and it was super old-fashioned. Yeah, it had the salacious whorehouse title and the women in it are hookers, but they just aren't. It's uh, When you go see it, even though it's rated R, it's almost a wholesome tale. It's almost an absurdly wholesome tale for what it is, which, which is great. To me, that's the charm of it. The songs are really, really good. Burt Reynolds is pretty bad in it, but he's trying something different. This is a movie mm-hmm. star who's trying something different um it's got that great 
I Will Always Love You song in it, right? Which wasn't a big hit in the summer of 82. That needed 10 more years before it would become the biggest hit song in ever. Um, in, uh, uh, that was from a pretty good movie too, actually. I, I'm not going to be a bodyguard? bodyguard is lame. Snob. Yep. I actually think that's pretty cool. Um, so, but it's weird. I remember when I was a kid watching the song where she sings the song to him and the, who directed Best Little Whorehouse in Texas? Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was directed by Colin Higgins. Hey, of 9 to 5 and foul mm -hmm. play fame. Really, really good with this sort of material. But he really wrecks the song because they just stand there and he sings it to her. And it's full of all these reaction shots of Reynolds when he's just standing. He's not singing. He's listening to a song. And it, it sort of does everything. That's the part that it messes up. The song's fantastic, but but Higgins, as great a comedy director as he is, and as fun as Whorehouse is when it's there, people are talking and the scandal is happening and everything. It the song part, the which really got a nail in a musical, which even Grease Two totally gets right, my humble opinion. Mm. This movie misses the mark on, and that is too bad because it's hard to watch now. It it's. It's a musical for people who claim they hate musicals. This is why, because it doesn't, it feels awkward when people are singing. When they're singing yep. and dancing in its ensemble, it works okay. Not great, but fine. But when people are singing to each other, it's just stagnant and still, and it, it feels awkward. And I Will Always Love You is, a, it's only three and a half minutes long, but it, that's a long time to stand in place and sing a song at somebody. Mm -hmm. And have the camera not do anything interesting. <laughs> and it's the big moment in the show. So I'm criticizing it, but hey, Best Little Whorehouse made bank. It made its money back. It was a hit. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. it really was. It was as good a hit at this point of this summer that you could possibly hope to have. It beat out these other titans, The Thing, Tron, Blade Runner, you know, these films that had real investment behind them. And it did that because of star power. It did it because people want to laugh. Well, and, yeah. And because tag, it had this kind of goofy, crazy name. The tagline for the movie was with, uh, with, with Bert and Dolly, this much fun shouldn't be legal. There you go. That was the tagline. It wasn't even about the movie. It was about come see. Bert but it's and called Dolly. Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and it's yeah, based on a very good stage show. And so it already has enough to get yep. it to the end. And I love Colin Higgins, but he just he didn't bring his A game, and it's the movie still kind of works because yep. because it's a good show. And the um, song the song that it adds from the stage show version to the movie is it it. I think we have to say it's one of the most iconic songs of all time. So, and to hear Dolly sing it yep. is special. Yep. Um, so uh, our next film, uh, Robin Williams is Garp. Hey. He's got a funny way of looking at life. That's the tagline for. What's the, the name of the author of the book? Cause it's really just him in a nutshell to me. Yeah. It's John Irving, John, John Irving, Irving more, more John Irving, you know, less cider house rules and more world according to Garp. Like it's his more whimsical side. Mm -hmm. um, but we talked about world according to Garp back in the Robin Williams episode. So when you really want the breakdown of that, we spent a good 10, 15 minutes on it. We yep. both really, really like it. 
we both kind of are like, what is it? It really is sort of a non sequitur here, but that's what's, that's part of what's great about it in summer 82, but more than anything, it's part of what's great about it in the early films of Robin Williams. He really gets to do something different here. Yeah. Um, it's not a role like Tom Hanks would have been good at, but it's like Robin Williams, like Tom Hanks sort of role where he's got yeah. a, he's got to react to the madness around him. He doesn't get to bring the madness with him a little bit, but, but that switch is something he had to learn how to do at some point, or he would have been intolerable. Everything just would have been Mork forever. Yeah. And it already was almost, if you look at Robin Williams's films, but it's, yep. He's the star of this. Obviously, Lithgow, Glenn Close. It's got a great cast. It's got a really, really fun sense of place. And it's a really sophisticated story compared to some of the childlike, you know, hero yeah. stuff that we're looking at here. And so for that reason, it's really, really good. It's a better I movie than Best Little Whorehouse. Yeah, we may have said this during the, the Robin Williams uh, episode. I imagine the world according to Garp, if you were... Um, uh, like an erudite, like snob that you wanted to impress people and, at a cocktail party or whatever. You'd go, oh, I haven't seen that. I've seen the world according to Garp. I've read you the know, book. Like, I've never seen the film. We don't even own a TV. Yeah, <laughs> it does sort of have that feel to it. Yes, yeah. but it, but it, it, it's it's fun and madcap enough that it's George Roy Hill after all. It's Butch yeah. Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's so it's not some. Auteur filmmaker and Irving's stories work. You know his his stories that have been adapted into films for the most part are very very good. And his mm -hmm. books that would make bad movies that are great books like Prayer for Owen Meany and some other things have wisely not been adapted into films. Yep. So this is a great it's a great beginner's guide sort of get your feet wet to, with John Irving. Yep. story it's really really good one from a film standpoint yeah third movie came out third week of july um a movie i don't know uh tell me a little bit about john sales and john frankenheimer working together with scott glenn on the challenge uh, uh the challenge the chat the challenge Toshiro Mifune and Scott Glenn are in the challenge together, shot mostly in Japan, so it has a really cool sense of place. Two ancient Chinese brothers live in the modern day, are fighting over a, a collection of swords that they want to bring together and that they both believe they have the right to. And mm -hmm. Scott Glenn is an American who gets wrapped up in that. And the, my favorite story from the challenge, and though maybe it's the reason it's on here because it's not a movie a lot of people have seen. It was sort of an HBO late night movie, so it had that life to it afterwards. But it's not very good. But Mifune said, because he could tell that Scott Glenn, John Sayles wrote a script that had all kinds of great stuff in it. And it got all these great Japanese actors to sign on to it. And Glenn was really, really excited to do it. He goes, it was a story about a man finding his father on the other side of the world. And what a powerful thing that was. And as it got shot, the producers and Frankenheimer turned it into a lean, mean, modern day showgun story that was just about sword fights and violence. And that's really mm -hmm. all it is in the end. And if you had said to Scott Glenn, he goes, he goes, I know you are disappointed. I am very disappointed as well. 
you can either let that break your heart every single day you're here, or you can enjoy Japan as it is with me as your guide. What do you say? And Glenn said that was the most extraordinary <laughs> offer he ever got, and it pulled yep. him out of his sort of depression because Glenn had been in a bunch of movies and he tried to star in things and he'd been cast as leading man and he's literally in nothing that we remember in that capacity from this era so it's been kind of one failure after another for him and he could just feel that that's what this was and I love the old wise man I love that this didn't happen in front of the camera where it was supposed to happen Mm -hmm. but that behind the camera this guy reached out when he really didn't have to and and made it a worthwhile experience for this visiting actor and and yeah it's i think that's really really neat the film if hey if you want to see like a epic medieval sword fight that takes place in a modern office tower at the end of the movie i mean it really does have some off the wall stuff in it yeah that's fun but it's just a fun cheap stupid b movie and it it it, you can tell that the makings of something more is there and that it's been ignored at every turn so yeah that's the challenge um so uh next up um it's something that people were clamoring for they were like i was wondering can opie direct what about what about um, Richie Cunningham? Can I see a movie directed by Richie Cunningham? Because I know Richie Cunningham was going off at the end of Happy Days. He was going off to L.A. to, to go to film school. Um, and he does. And his first movie is Night Shift, directed his, by Ron Howard. It's his second movie, by the way. Second movie? Oh, yeah, his first movie was Grand Theft Auto for Roger Corman. Uh, well, his first Hollywood studio picture is Night Shift. Okay, but New World Pictures. According are- to this. Yeah, but it isn't. I mean, he made a full feature film with New World Pictures called Grand Theft Auto, which was a decent-sized hit, so it's just it's not his first okay. movie. Yeah, it's first movie for Warner Brothers or Paramount or whatever, but I think when you look at 1980, that distinction isn't so important. And this movie, while it's got a really great rep and is really fun, it's not like it's some elevated A-list material, you know? It's, mm-hmm. it's a story of... Uh, the guy who works the night shift at the local coroner's office who is gets stuck with his boss's nephew in a, and this film's got lots of things going for it. And not at least of which is Ron Howard being a really, really good romantic comedy director, which he is mm-hmm. He's so good. And this is exactly the kind of material he should be doing. This is a little R rated for what he ended up being good at, but it's still, it's still just this fluffy, you know, fluffy warm fuzzy hug of a film in the end and it the a couple things it has going for it the the real great thing in it is henry winkler who was offered the part of the crazy cousin and read the script and said please 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 can i play the part of the geeky mm-hmm. quiet the dip- the yeah yeah the, the the basically the main character of the film but the the guy who's not like the Fonz, for the love of God, please let me play that. And of course, this it, he's so good in it that it, he should have been able to play anything from here on out. It, as it is, it ended up, it's, he kind of retreated from being in front of the cat camera when Happy Days went off the air and became a kind of producer and directed some TV projects and things. Um, because he just, he was, he was, 
he was the he was Fonzie. He was Arthur Fonzarelli. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was to the world, and he just needed time to be able to get away from that. But in one glorious moment, when he was still a young man, he got to play somebody who was completely different than that, and somebody who, frankly, was so much more like him, and that he identified with so much more. And that comes through the performance. Um, they asked every comic in America <laughs> to play the other part. Everybody, the guy they got was like the 64th choice. He was famous for nothing. Um, mm-hmm. He'd been a, it, memorable in a couple of TV appearances and things, but I mean, this was, was, so he was on Hollywood's radar as we better keep an eye on him, but he was not, let's put all the comic needs of a, of a major studio film, Joel, into one basket with this dude. Yeah, yeah. But they ended up doing it anyway because his readings were great. His audition, I mean, he auditioned his way and fought and kicked and scratched and crawled his way into the role. And he makes the film because the, because he, everything he's doing is fun and, off the cuff and even when it's scripted feels improvised and crazy is Michael Keaton, Michael Douglas, who had to change his name to Michael Keaton for obvious reasons. It could, it was already a Michael Douglas in the screen actors guild. Um, and he's fantastic in it. And the two of them are such a fun, weird partnership of a team um, if the movie loses anything, it loses a little bit of something in its in its kind of third main cast member, played by Shelley Long, who's this mm-hmm. uh, prostitute that it, it moves down, in down the hall from uh, Henry Winkler's character and his fiance, and they become hooked up. They start using the the city morgue as a place where they run a giant and extremely lucrative and successful prostitution ring out of. Mm-hmm. Where they, I can't remember what they do. They give the women, they only take 10% as pimps. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The story's not, to say what the plot is, is not giving it any respect to the energy and the sort of amazing 1982 New York at night feel that this film has. The songs are fantastic. Um yeah. The locations are crazy. The fashions are berserk. All of Keaton's like weird inventions that he's trying to make are hilarious. Um, he's so fun in it. I just can't explain it. He obviously Michael Keaton grew into bringing that sort of zaniness into more serious roles and more believable people. So he became a much better actor, and as as good an actor now as there is. So that is fun to watch. But him just as a straight up. I'm going to go for the laugh at turned up to 11 every chance I can is so fun. And the fact that this soul of this human guy comes through the performance um, is even better because I don't know that that's necessarily on the page for him. It certainly is for Winkler, but I don't think it is for him. Shelley Long, I don't really buy her as a prostitute, but she's cute enough right. in it. And she's got, you know, as we know, she's got really good comic timing comic and she gets timing, the yeah. yeah she gets the basics of the relationships and stuff and all that's really really fun so it's a mm-hmm. fun team up and it's got a fun big finale and it's got some dangerous actual criminals coming after our heroes and it's a groovy movie it's a it's a great big studio debut by howard and it launched him into bigger and better things and that's fun so I, I love Night Shift. Night Shift's been treated abominably on home video for a big hit movie directed by a really famous filmmaker starring a bunch of people we know. I, but 
it has recently been uh, put together and restored and with a with a nice broadcast version that you should be able to catch I would think on HBO Max but I don't know what's going on with HBO Max these days so maybe not Well no one knows. yeah it's yeah HBO Max that'll be a topic at some point But as a Warner Brothers catalog title that hasn't yeah. been playing many places that's where you should <clears throat> be able to find it hopefully Right Night Shift is uh, Night Shift's a blast and I'm I'm not into the prostitutes and I don't like all the nudity and stuff. Like I, I, I complained about that even when I was a kid, I just was like, Ooh, yeah, this was one of those movies where you watch the TV version like eight times. And then when you actually see it, you're like, Oh my God, what's going on? Yep. Um, but that doesn't bring it down. It's fun. Yeah. Again, night shift only available on Amazon prime. uh, Okay. Well, there you go. So, okay. Uh, all right, let's, um, let's finish off July here and then blow through August uh, and, and I think we can do it because there's only there's only a few movies here to left to talk about. Uh, first one is Tex that I don't know anything about. Never seen Tex. I know oh, I, I was hoping you would Max. have seen Tex. I've never seen it either. Okay, well, it's, after their mother dies this. and their father leaves them, <laughs> teenage brothers Tex and Mason McCormick struggle to make it on their own. Uh, directed by Tim Hunter, based on the novel by S.E. Hinton. Uh, Matt Dillon, it's yeah, Meg Tilly, Matt Dillon, Emilio Estevez. Uh, that, yeah, so that sounds great. Essie Hinton, Matt Dillon, Disney. Um, you know what I mean? Tim Hunter, yeah. it, I believe it to be good, but I have never seen it because, again, it's one of those weird, it's unlike Tron, which you know was did about the same business as Tex. Tex doesn't mm-hmm. have a built-in, like, it's a property sort of thing to it. It's this real-life kind of story, and as a result, it's hard to come by. Is it only on Amazon, too? Correct. How about that? Amazon. All right. Mm-hmm. So even Disney Plus doesn't have their own movie on it, which we talked about earlier this year with Night Crossing. These are the yeah. sort of films of Disney's, and I can't speak to text, but I believe it's probably pretty good. It's it's a beloved movie by the people who saw it at the time and have lived with it through the years. And it is one of those I saw it on HBO type of films. Um, I've never seen it because it's been treated abominably by its own studio, which is too bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, next up is... Um... Uh, we've been we've been longing for another musical movie musical and we've been longing for a they've Christy all been McNichol. doing so well to this point yep and we've been uh, just desperately asking for a christy mcnichol christopher atkins vehicle Ugh. um and uh we get it in the pirate movie i went to see et for the fourth time um and we went into the wrong theater and what started playing was the pirate movie and we sat there and watched the whole thing that's my pirate movie story i will say that my first ever celebrity crush when i was even younger than i was here as a 10 year old was christy mcnichol so christy mcnichol Mm -hmm. in widescreen for a couple hours singing songs um it was great i didn't care that was awesome um So this was a fun movie when you were a kid, but this was a abominably mocked disaster oh, of a yeah. film project for the time. I think when you're 10, you don't really know that. You assume, well, they made a movie. It must be good. Like, uh, there is this naivete that still goes with this period in time where it's kind of, it must be, I mean, it must be good. Somebody must like it. And it turns out, hey, it this pirate movie is also a cult movie. 
Pirate movie's problem is that it's a it's a widescreen film. Who directed it? Old, super old school director. Ken Anakin. Ken Anakin, who made Battle of the Bulge and those magnificent men and their flying machines and uh, Swiss Family Robinson. Ken Anakin impressed George Lucas when he was a young man so much that George named the hero of his Star Wars story after him. But he's has no place in 1982. He's making this weird, madcap, modern, Paul Williams version of Pirates of the... or uh, Pirates of Penzance. Penzance, is what yeah. it's a remake of. Um, and and just... It, 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 the hairstyles and stuff... I mean, William Cott and Christy McNichols... Or is it William Cott? No, it's... No, Chris Christopher Atkins. I get those guys mixed up all yeah, the time. Well, I don't actually I get them mixed up, but I'm flip their names all the time i've done it before on the show chris atkins thank you same though same little curly haired <laughs> dude they basically played the same sort of parts at this time um this movie ended chris atkins career christy mcnichol snuck through and was able to do a few more quality things but as a i'm starring in movies this was it for him um and it's too bad because it's fun. It's a fun, well-meaning, old-fashioned movie musical. The songs are pretty cool, actually. Um, but it's just so silly and cartoony and dumb. And whenever you make something that dumb, you leave yourself open to ridicule. And it's the ridicule that, that sticks. And this movie's just yeah. too easy to ridicule. It's it's for all its joys. And I it is fun. It is kind of a what were they thinking when you're watching a film um I, I do have a soft spot in my heart for it because of my experience with it mm -hmm. it's way too way too easy to ridicule and that that kills you every time yep um all right uh next up is another beloved is this is a beloved uh a, a class kind of not even a cult classic anymore because now it's just a classic a lot of these uh, are is, like that yeah. yeah um it is amy heckerling's uh Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Wow, we don't have time to really talk about Fast Times, do we? No, Fast Times, no. And we'll we'll get into Fast Times. It'll, it'll well, I don't think I'm ever going to do a deep dive of Fast Times because I don't We're think it's... We're not going to do a... No, we won't, but because we'll, I don't this think will it, be part of another show. I don't think it's plot is the thing. It. What's cool about it is that there's a script here that it it's... It, it's written by Cameron Crowe, who's a really good writer, but he wrote mm -hmm. he wrote this corny stuff and all this weird high school hijinks, and he sort of wrote the ultimate high school hijinks film ever, and I think it really is that. So you can't, you can't, you just can't dismiss it in any sort of way. It really is maybe the best ever at that, which is something that's really amazing. And Cameron, of course, is a really, really good writer. And Heckerling's a really adept and buoyant filmmaker who keeps things cooking, keeps the edit tight. What I find that amazing about about Fast Times isn't the 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 Sean Penn stuff or even mm -hmm. the the sexual fantasy or all the iconic stuff from the movie which live in infamy and doesn't need me to back it up. I think everybody knows these bits that I'm talking about. Uh, Penn's brilliant and it's not that Phoebe Cates is incredibly sexy. It's not that. It's that what I really connect with and what I connected with at the time is that these characters are all frightened of something. I think when you go back and watch Fast Times, yeah. the, that 
that moment in high school where, yeah, it's a party and it's fun. And that's what the movie sold at. And that's what the movie delivers. And yet that, that apprehension and that what is going to happen to me and who am I and where am I going part of it lives and breathes amongst these characters throughout the whole thing. And, and that, it, that's why it's so good. That's why it's yeah. so good. That's the part you can't shake out of it for all, all all the little bits and pieces that you cut out and put on YouTube and all the little, you know what I mean? You can chop it up. It's, uh, it, it's about that. It's about that. You don't know what's going to happen next. And you really are aware that things are changing. You know what I mean? I, I love mm-hmm. that so much. Uh, Judge Reinhold and Jennifer Jason Lee and the whole ensemble, it's, you know, it's full of people who are just really, really good actors that are about to go out and just star in their own movies. So that yeah, yeah. that's fun. The soundtrack has a song by every single but one member that had ever been in the Eagles. <laughs> it's a two it's a double album soundtrack. And I'm sorry to bring up the soundtracks, but I have to say this because I think this is crazy. It's all solo acts, Joe Walsh, Don Henley, Glenn Fry, Randy Meisner. Um the list goes on and on. Timothy B. Schmidt, they all have a song on the soundtrack. So whoever was the musical director on the thing, loved the Eagles. Even the big hit song from it, Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown co-wrote the Eagles' first big hit, Take It Easy. So there's an Eagles connection there as well. Um, And it's on the Eagles' record label. But their Eagles didn't exist anymore. So the fact that they all came back and did this album on their own, it sort of launched their solo careers, which I find fascinating. And... And there's more than that. Billy Squires on here, Stevie Nicks. That soundtrack yep. is that soundtrack is 1982. It is yeah. it is 1982. And even though you don't know all the songs, that's part of the gloriousness of it. Somebody's Baby is the greatest teen romance song. I know it was written by an old baby boomer, but right. I love that song. I love love that song every time I hear it. It's a perfect pop song, and it sums up that perfect longing you know it's not just horniness it's it although that's definitely part of it it's that longing to to connect with somebody in a way that's real and Mm -hmm. and having a crush on somebody like it's i love it so fast times isn't a movie i would normally like and i don't really i don't fit into the conversation about fast times as a critic or as a film historian in a convenient way but the, the, I really do believe heart and soul in the magic of that. And all the best Cameron Crowe scripts of the 80s feature that. That that scariness, man, that you're one step out the door. What's going to happen? Anything could happen. But you got to be brave and, and go for it. I love that. Right. Um, all right. Next, speaking of great, uh, a great soundtrack and a, an incredibly popular song, um, our next movie features one of those two. It also features uh, bravery and confronting something that is scary. And that is an officer and a gentleman. Oh, man. How many more do we have? Because this is hard. Just the, one more after this one. Just okay. one more after this and one. And we know that one and we talked yep. about that at length. Okay, good. Yep. So I know where we're at. I just going to say, I can't keep rambling on and Taking up too much people's time. I'm I am conscious of that. Believe it or not, everybody. Officer and a gentleman. This song. Yep. This is the song that won the Oscar at the Oscars at a really loaded Oscar song category. Yeah, you've heard us speak of them. The songs of '82 and the way songs were used in films of '82 is. I feel like we 
created a monster that year that other years perverted and sort of ruined it. <laughs> it's hard to explain. <laughs> but this year, it all worked, man. Even in Summer Lovers, the song is fantastic. Even yeah. though the song is totally schizophrenic, it still works. That's awesome. So, so uh, Up Where We Belong. Yeah. Is the song. And that song playing when uh, What's-His-Face shows up at the end of the, the movie to the working class textile mill or whatever that they work in, in the his dress white navy uniform and picks sweeps Deborah Winger off her feet and carries her out into the audience, sent hearts aflutter nationwide. And I'm sorry to start at the ending because that's not really what the movie is, but but that is... What is that? That's 80s iconic uh, yeah. filmmaking. And uh, this was directed by Taylor Hackford, who's a guy I really am mean to. Sorry, Mr. Helen Mirren. You made enough movies that I love that I should be nicer to you, but I'm always just super mean to you. I think it's against <laughs> all odds. I really do hold that thing against you. Yeah. What was your next yeah. movie? You, you have a lot to answer for there, sir. And Devil's Advocate. Okay. Right? Right. I know Taylor listens to the show. We got to talk about that someday, mate. You got to justify that thing to me somehow. I don't think you can. Nevertheless, biggest hit the guy had and a really, really good romantic drama. It's with the structure of a of a uh, boot camp film, of a, of a basic training film, I guess is what we would yeah. call them. So yeah, it's yeah. got the structure of Police Academy or it's got the structure of Stripes or it's got the structure of whatever. It's the... It's the, you join the military and you're going to find your way and grow as a person because of that. But the soldiers, or the seamen in this case, and the women who love them sort of working class story going on here is great. The drill sergeant, Academy Award winning for this role, uh, Louis Gossett Jr. is fantastic. Richard Gere, after headlining a few really notable movies, really hits his stride as a movie star in this film. Deborah Winger, I said it before, I said it last week, best you could have done. It's hard yep. to imagine any, maybe, maybe top flight Karen Allen could have done this part. But, but Deborah Winger knocks it out of the park. Plus, you've got that sort of soundtrack thing that sort of, it, the movies, it's all this stuff, but it's also got a little bit of rock and roll to it. And that's, because of Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, who produced this thing, it's as much as it's Hackford movies, it's definitely theirs too. Although they very famously hated that song and wanted it to be some other song that is also famous that would have been much, much worse. Mm -hmm. um, so for the guys who made the 80s soundtracks what they were, it, it's kind of funny that they got that one wrong. Um it's a good movie. It is It is like Night Shift, like some of these other ones we're talking about, which really are about stories about people living in 1982, uh, Fast Times even. This really is a 1982 movie, like the cars, the hairstyles, the music playing in the bars. But there's something more to it. The And it's it's not in the military stuff. It's in the romance. There's something to that relationship that is magical that lives between the lines and lives in the hearts of these these performers and it's amazing that it does because winger and uh, gear very famously didn't really get along very well during the making right of the film, so right 
And yet the fireworks are up on screen, baby, right where they belong. Indeed. Indeed. Up, up where they belong. Up. The fireworks are up. Couldn't resist that one. Sorry, folks. Um, we're going to end this episode talking about one of arguably the greatest cinematic achievements <laughs> of all time, let alone 1982. I mean, we talked about some great films here. Um, but as I said before, there is no one that is is better on screen uh that captures this this decade better than mr mark singer and uh and and his maybe the peak maybe i i mean the the role uh i think that he that will just forever associate him with aside from uh v is um the his amazing performance as Dar in The Beastmaster. <laughs> I think Mark Singer, it, it, the perfect role for him actually was Mike Donovan in V because he gets That's to true. be a modern guy in that. But I like everything in Beastmaster. Beastmaster, although it, it, it was written at the same time, it came out the same year and couldn't possibly have known it was copying... Uh, Conan, it Conan. right down to its story elements, which are almost the same. The opening chapters of each movie follow the exact same beats and the exact same things happen to the exact same types of characters before they diverge only slightly. They really are the same story, which is kind of amazing. Because as I say, you you uh, Beastmaster was made the summer of the previous year. It couldn't have known it was copying Conan. Uh, or, mm-hmm. Because if it did know, it would be one of the greatest ripoffs of all time. We slightly prefer Beastmaster to Conan, and the reason is because it's funner. Is that a word? It's, it's in this case. I think when describing Beastmaster, yes, you can say funner. It's funner. You know, it's just as dark. It's a dark fantasy. Ban is it dark? It's the absolutely the hardest core PG rated film ever made. It's got like we said it before. Every time we talk about, it, it's got full frontal female nudity. It's got this psycho cult horrible disgusting killings every few seconds it's uh, horrifically violent and sort of terrifying in what its fantasy elements are anytime you're dealing with a cult on screen it's got a full-on child sacrifice right yeah unbelievable so hey man it's got rip torn in a prosthetic bird beak nose Mm mm-hmm if that's all it had, it's worth your money and the price of admission. But it has, it has so much more. And where Singer really, really gets it, he's he and um, Tanya Roberts are really Tanya cute Roberts. together. Yeah. And John Amos brings a lot of greatness to the film. Like this is so much to like about it. everybody. Every time you're introduced to somebody new or a new twist or a new issue, it's fun and interesting and fascinating. But what you really get is an actor who was really, really interested in the animals and really, really wanted to engage with them. And Singer, while he's beefed up as much as he's ever going to be in his whole life, and he was beefed up a lot, um, where the thing really sings is, this, is, is that these animals are his tools, no question, but they're, and they're his pets to the degree that we can relate to, but they're his friends. And when you watch it, Mm-hmm. those friendships and those relationships are so powerful and the loss of an animal in this film is like just yeah. rips your guts out <laughs> and 
And that's something that they never captured again. That's something and that they never would capture again. Don Cassarelli shoots this like he's making an epic for the ages, even though he's making a sub $10, $10 million shot in Southern California <laughs> dark yeah. fantasy. It they might just be sub $10. Yeah, Lee, no. yeah, Lee Holdridge's score. It absolutely never, you never, it catches you winking. It, it, it fills the thing with life and romanticism and danger. Mm-hmm. So it's that, it's, it's crazy, it's bonkers, it is easy to make fun of, but that... That gonzo, no-holds-barred enthusiasm for the material and complete lack of cynicism, it just makes the thing a joy to sit through every time I watch it, and I love yeah. it. And I've seen it as much as I've seen any I, yeah. movie in my life. I've seen it I've seen it a lot. I've seen it many, 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 many times. Yeah, me too. And, me too. And I never get sick of it. The moment... Where he infiltrates the the city where the cult has kind of taken over and are doing these sacrifices, and he sends his eagle to save the next kid that's going to be thrown into a fire pit, and the eagle picks the kid out of the pit, and it's just not possible. Eagle can't fly with a kid and its talons. Mm-hmm. Even the choreography of it is they do the best they can, but it's it's all ridiculous. But there's this moment that happens that is that personifies every hero that's been in every movie that I've ever seen ever in my life, where the bird flies out over the crowd worshiping this cult, and they all drop to their knees to worship it, and Dar stands tall and stares down the bad guy and says, and he doesn't say anything, but what he's saying is, I'm coming for you. This is bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm the hero of this thing, and I'm not yep. bowing to you, and... Torn's reaction to it is is almost comedic, but is also yep. priceless. But that you stand tall when the rest of the world bows, man. That's that it's it, good. It, it's, it's so, so good. corny, and it gives me chills every time. Every time, Beastmaster, HBO. Hey, Beastmaster's on. You could, uh, and if you want to relive a little, you know what I, you know, would be awesome is if uh, somehow on when you watch it on Prime Video, if somehow they could still do the old school you know of course you can't but that would i mean that's to me that's it's seamless it is a seamless the beastmaster starts with the hbo right it's really weird as a kid when you hear that theme song you know maybe bronco billy starts next who knows what movie is on tap for that evening but you know it might be rhinestone but yeah expect to see that face and that thing start turning around and the movie and beastmaster to begin it's the mm-hmm. natural thing that starts after Correct. that song. And oh. you know, what can you say? 1982, people! Oh, it's 1982! God, so what good. a good year. God, what so a good, good year. All right, so we are going to continue our journey through 1982 and next week's show. Next, it's either going to be next week's show or the week after that. we got to decide because we have a double feature thing coming up. We may take a break on 1982. Probably uh, not, but maybe we'll see. We got a week. Yeah, I guess we could it. bump. We could we could bump the uh, even though we're recording the the double feature episode, uh, which yeah, we have some fun double features. Maybe I should name the double features. In no, case no, no. Wants we, to watch no, any of them? No. We just, All right, we're too long, way too long in the show. Sorry. All right. Hey. All right, uh, folks. When I passed the two hour mark, I got officer and a gentleman, beastmaster and fast times. I don't know what you wanted me to do. I had to give them their. I had to give them at least a little something, something, something. Yeah, we're good. It's all good, everybody. All right. Take care. Bye now.
Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.